Welcome to EmergencyMedicineCases.com. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. On this month's episode number 39, an update on trauma, pearls, and pitfalls, we have the triumphant return of Dave McKinnon and Mike Brzezowski. Dr. McKinnon is an emergency physician and trauma team leader at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto. He's also the emergency medicine postgraduate coordinator at that site. He completed his residency training at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. Dr. Brzezowski is an emergency physician and trauma team leader at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Centre in Toronto, where he's the emergency trauma liaison with the trauma program. He completed his residency in emergency medicine at the University of Toronto in 1993 and trained in Toronto, New York, Denver, Baltimore, and Perth, Australia in the field of trauma. Before we get into the episode, just a couple announcements. First, I'm very excited for the 27th annual Update in Emergency Medicine Conference in Whistler, British Columbia, February 23rd to 26, 2014, just in a few months. I'll be giving two or three talks there. We're going to have an amazing lineup of speakers. So many of the EM cases guest experts are going to be there. David Carr, who did vascular emergencies and found down with us. Jason Fisher, the pediatric ultrasound guru, who did the ultrasound episode with us. We'll have George Perfiris, who did the non-traumatic eye emergency episode with us. Shirley Lee, who did the emergencies in pregnancy episode with us. Claire Atsima, who did the atrial fibrillation episode with us. Joel Yaffe, who did the hot joints one with us. Lisa Thurger, who did the toxicology one with us. Doug St. Clair, who did the cognitive decision-making and medical error one with us. Paul Hannum, who was also on the ultrasound episode. And finally, Dr. Mike Brzezowski, who's on this episode, will be with us there as well. The second announcement I wanted to make is that EM Cases has just formed a new advisory board to help me out with future content and directions. On the advisory board, we have John Foote, Sanjay Mehta, Eric Latofsky, Joel Yaffe, Walter Himmel, Kaldeep Sidhu, and Rick Pensiner. So if you bump into any of these guys and you do have any comments about EM cases, please let us know. Finally, I've been getting a lot of emails about downloading the EM cases podcast to smartphones and tablets and how it's very difficult. Presently, the easiest way to download to those devices is to first download to your laptop or desktop and then sync with your iTunes. I'm really excited because in the near future, we will have the capability to allow you to download the episode directly to these devices. And not only that, but we're going to be redoing the entire website and have a whole bunch of new features available for your listening pleasure. So without further ado, I'd like to get on with our update in trauma with Mike Brukowski and David McKinnon. Overall, about 15% of the world's entire burden of illness can be attributed to trauma, and trauma kills more people under the age of 45 than any other cause. The concept of the golden hour is more than 20 years old, but still, most preventable trauma deaths still occur in the ED in the first few hours after injury. 
Studies from the last decade show that up to about half of traumatic deaths are potentially preventable. There's been a massive shift in the way we approach and manage trauma patients, highlighted by the concepts like damage control resuscitation, permissive hypotension, massive transfusion protocols, and the like. We delved into these concepts in episode 10 with Mike and Dave. I love that, Mike and Dave. We should have a Mike and Dave show. (laughs) Anyhow, we delved into these concepts in episode 10 with Mike and Dave and went through a head-to-toe pearls and pitfalls review of major trauma from airway management to vascular limb injuries. If you haven't already, I highly recommend that you listen to episode 10 before listening to this one as it lays the foundation for what we're about to discuss. In this episode, we're going to update you on the most relevant key trauma literature in the last couple of years, what's new with damage control resuscitation, how best to predict which patients will crump, imaging controversies, our favorite EM cases subject lately, tranexamic acid, blunt chest trauma, including cardiac trauma, aortic trauma, and sternal fractures. So first, I'd like to talk about predicting the sick trauma patient. So we'll throw out a case. A 27-year-old man, previously healthy, loses control on his motorcycle on the highway and crashes into the barrier. According to EMS, the motorcycle had major damage. He was wearing a helmet and full motorcycle gear. He wasn't ambulatory at the scene, and there was a brief loss of consciousness reported by bystanders. EMS found him to have a blood pressure of 85 on 55, a heart rate of 125, an O2 sat of 99%, and a GCS of 14. He complained of abdominal, shoulder, and neck pain, and denied alcohol or drug use. He was given a normal saline bolus by EMS, and 100 micrograms of fentanyl IV. In the ED, his initial vitals were a blood pressure of 110 on 70, heart rate of 90, respiratory rate of 24, O2 sat of 99. So his BP and heart rate had normalized from the EMS readings of 85 on 55 and a heart rate of 125 that he had in the field. He had a second large bore IV placed. His helmet was carefully removed with inline C-spine immobilization. His primary survey revealed diffuse abdominal tenderness. His initial FAST exam was positive, and his chest X-ray and AP pelvis X-ray were normal. So, Dr. McKinnon, what, if anything, worries you about this patient in terms of his likelihood of crumping or crashing? The usual algorithm with a positive FAST, like in this patient, is if the patient's stable, then they go on to get a CT to localize the injury, and if they're unstable, they go directly to the OR. What else would you want to know about this patient to help you to decide how sick he is and to help you decide whether he should go to the CT scanner or directly to the OR? Well, that's a very good question, Anton. I found when I started doing trauma call and being a TTL, I think management was very often based on the current snapshot. And so as soon as somebody saw one normal blood pressure reading, the patient was suddenly moved from the unstable category to the stable category. And I always was a little uneasy with that. And so this patient that you've presented had a hypotensive episode in the field. And when they arrived at the emergency department, it was normotensive. So I think in my mind, these are the kind of patients I've always worried about. I think it's easy for us to want to not believe the pre-hospital vitals. And that's a common thing, I think. We see the patient in front of us. Maybe they look okay. We see the blood pressure reading on the screen. And that's the one you tend to want to believe. But now I think in the last couple of years, there's some papers that have sort of looked at that. 
And so one is what people commonly refer to as the just one drop paper. And this is from the Journal of Trauma in 2010. And it actually looked at these exact patients, patients with a single hypotensive episode that then show up to the emergency department with a normal blood pressure. And basically, as you might expect, it showed that these patients had a higher incidence of requiring operative intervention. And so I think this kind of validates what probably a lot of us thought. So I think you should really pay attention to that pre-hospital hypotensive episode. Mm -hmm. So now there's hypotensive and there's hypotensive. You know, if the patient's blood pressure was 70 on palp in the field, then that's obviously more concerning than 100 on 50. So can you just tell us a little bit more about what this paper found in terms of blood pressure cutoffs of what we should be worried about and what we don't need to be worried about? This uh, paper looked at patients with a single systolic blood pressure reading less than 110. And then they actually divided it up a little bit funny. They looked at then the patients that had a reading below 105 and then those with a reading between 105 and 110. A little odd way to break it up, but they did show that those with the reading single reading below 105, 38% required either immediate OR or angiography versus 10% of those with 105 to 110 as their single systolic blood pressure reading. So it's a little odd way. The, my only concern about this paper is how they broke it up. You wonder if they data snooped a little bit. I would have liked to seen them just take a simple number that we all have in our head, perhaps 90 as a systolic. Maybe look at patients that had a single reading below 90 and patients that didn't. Right. So it kind of seems like they took a, the blood pressure of 105 and that's what looked best for their, their statistics. It did. So I think something like this would probably need to be validated in larger groups and going forward. But again, I even would like to see a different number than 105. But Okay. But if there is a magic number, it's 105. You know, we're used to thinking, like you said, 90 as a patient that we're really worried about. I mean, 105, you know, there's lots of patients walking around with a blood pressure of 105. So I guess you got to take it with a grain of salt. Mike, do you have any comments about that? Yeah, I'll comment first about just going back to basics and that if you go back to the ATLS classification of shock, one of the sort of most striking things is that by the time you reach class 3 shock, that's the, the first time that you're going to see a drop in your blood pressure. So at that point, you've already lost 35 to 40% of your blood volume. So I think a hypotensive reading, as Dave said, in the field should be taken seriously. The other thing about this case is if you've got a patient that has a obviously high energy mechanism and uh, complaining of ab abdominal pain and a positive fast, I think the, the bell should be ringing right off the bat. You know, this patient is potentially going to get into trouble. As far as the paper goes... Yeah, I wonder if this was a post hoc analysis where they got their data and then went back and said, okay, well, you know what, the data looks good if we use 105 to 110 and less than 105. Again, that, that point that Dave made that uh, you wonder whether this was their hypothesis going into this prospectively or it was a post hoc analysis. So I think those things are, are important to recognize that you know, take, take shock seriously and that you know you've lost a significant amount of blood volume in order to have a drop in your blood pressure. So while we know that one drop in your blood pressure is something that we do need to worry about, patients with normal blood pressure, they don't give us an idea of whether that patient is sick or not. And so we need to go on to other things aside from the clinical picture, the mechanism, et cetera. We have to go on to other things to figure out what the potential for this patient crashing is. So that brings us to lab values. So with this case, you're going through your secondary survey. You get back the blood gas. We know as part of our damage control resuscitation, we want to avoid acidosis. And so your blood gas on this patient is the following. 
The pH is 7.28. The PCO2 is 38. Bicarb is 14. And the base deficit is 8. So when it comes to lab values, there's the base deficit, there's serial hematocrits, there's end-tidal CO2, there's lactate, there's others. Let's talk about all of these in turn. So we'll start with the base deficit. Can you explain how to interpret the base deficit, and are you worried about this patient more than you were before? So why does the bicarb go down? Why does the base deficit change? So what's happening to these patients when they bleed? They hypoperfuse, and when you hypoperfuse, your tissues go into a lactic acidosis and they produce lactate. That's the whole premise. It's maybe important to take a step back and understand what's happening. That's why in bleeding trauma patients, the lactate can go up, the bicarb can go down, and the base deficit can become more negative. And I did want to touch on, because it can get confusing when you look at the numbers. So our lab actually reports BE, base excess, and the base excess is then a negative number. So a base excess of negative seven means a base deficit of seven. And sometimes people will say the base deficit is minus eight, which is not correctly true. That means it's a base excess of eight, a base deficit of minus eight. So it's important just to understand the nomenclature. Mm-hmm. And when you read your lab values, you just want to make sure you're looking at the right thing and understanding the number. You know, there's been some recent literature that suggests that an increased base deficit, which is actually a more negative base deficit, that predicts uh, patients that are going to get into trouble. One particular paper is the one which describes the crump factor, and it looks at patients that had a combination of physiologic parameters and, and anatomic findings that actually required uh, further resuscitation and actually went to the OR and had operative management. And those findings were that the patients that were hypotensive and had a base deficit greater than 6 and a positive fast. So those that triad of uh, combination sort of seemed to predict patients that required operative management. And how did they define hypotensive? So this was a, a paper that looked at patients that had blood pressures less than 105 systolic. Okay, so again, again a, different, a different parameter than we would normally use. Right. And I would suspect that if they used 90, it would probably be even higher, the incidence of requiring either operative intervention or interventional radiology uh, for embolization, et cetera. The formula, again, was systolic blood pressure less than 105, a positive fast, and a base deficit of more than 6 should go directly to the OR, or at least strongly consider avoiding a CT scan. In speaking to the surgeons about this paper, they kind of agreed with it, which I was a little bit surprised, because if the patient is stable enough, usually they'll want to know where the bleeding's coming from and have an anatomic diagnosis. What do you find, Dave? Well, I think one thing that comes into this discussion is the management of intra-abdominal trauma. And if you look over the last 15 to 20 years, it's really changed where non-operative management of splenic injuries, for example, it used to be 80% of splenic injuries were managed operatively back in the early 90s, and now it's about 20%. It's flip-flopped. So given that so many can be managed non-operatively with observation or maybe angioembolization, Papers like this are really trying to find who really does need to go to the OR because probably we can watch some of these people that are borderline stable knowing now that a lot of them do well if we don't operate. So it's this balance of you don't want to expose a patient to a a necessary operation, but you don't want to sit on a patient that really needs an operation when maybe that first hour or two is the critical time to get them to the OR. Mm -hmm. I mean, I used to not be as big of a believer in the value of lab parameters, But I think there's more and more pretty overwhelming evidence that, for example, the base deficit, I think, is pretty predictive. And the surgeons have been on board for a while. One other little thing I'll probably say is, how quick does your lab, what's the turnaround time? So when we send a blood gas, 
because they're done on vented patients in the hospital, the labs are set up to get those turned around very quickly. So we get a, a, either a venous or arterial blood gas result back within usually about 10 or 15 minutes. That's very quick. That's a very good turnaround time. And when you're in the trauma room with a really sick patient, that's going to be useful. We can now also do lactate on our blood gas syringe. And again, it'll come back very quickly within about 15 minutes. We used to send our lactates on a tube. And if they get sent like that, they take about 45 minutes or an hour. And in that case, lactate to me, to get it back in an hour is not very useful. Mm -hmm. The patient's already declared themselves whether they're stable or need the OR. So -hmm. I think it's important to know which values you can get back quickly and can you do a lactate on a blood gas syringe, for example? Mm-hmm. So That brings up when you, you mentioned VBG versus ABG. Now in, in sepsis and DKA, most emergency doctors have replaced the ABG with a VBG that doesn't torture the patient. When it comes to trauma, what does the literature say about the comparing VBG and ABG? Is VBG good enough? Yeah, I think it's pretty much accepted now that you don't necessarily need to do an ABG. The only advantage you'll get it from uh, arterial blood gas is the arterial PaO2, but uh, I don't think that's really crucial. Most articles uh, show that there is a good correlation between the VBG and the ABG as far as looking at your pH and your bicarbon-based deficit. One other point just to make about this is that You know, we always at all costs want to avoid a massive transfusion and going down that path. And that really the key thing is you want to stop surgical bleeding. So if this may be an identifier, and I know we'll talk about this a little bit later, but this may also be a bit of an identifier to who's going to be requiring more transfusions and blood products. But the paper didn't really actually look at that as an an outcome, but it, it should still twig us, okay, maybe this patient needs blood products now, but the definitive management is to stop the bleeding, which would be taking them to the OR. So it might help you get out of some transfusion problems. If you if you waited to see and sort of sit on this patient, you may be getting yourself down a vicious cycle, which is not where you want to be. Let's review the key points up till now. First, the important paper called Just One Drop, the Significance of a Single Hypotensive Blood Pressure Reading During Trauma Resuscitations out of the Journal of Trauma in 2010. They found that 38% of those with a single systolic blood pressure less than 105 required immediate OR or angio versus only 10% of those with a systolic blood pressure of 105 to 110. These patients with systolic blood pressure less than 105 were four times more likely to require urgent surgical intervention. So what we've traditionally thought of as a worrisome systolic blood pressure in a trauma patient below 90 perhaps should be changed to 105, even if it's just a single reading below 105. Remember that they probably arrived at this magical blood pressure number in the post hoc analysis rather than looking at it prospectively, so we have to take it with a grain of salt. The next paper is called Pre-Hospital Hypotension in Blunt Trauma, Identifying the Crump Factor. This was a prospective cohort study with 231 blunt trauma patients who were hypotensive with EMS, but normal on arrival. And they came up with a formula to predict who should go directly to the OR and strongly consider avoiding going to the CT scanner. The formula is a systolic blood pressure of less than 105, a positive fast, and a base deficit of more than six. And what about replacing an ABG with a VBG in trauma patients? 
Most studies support the idea that a VBG can replace an ABG when it comes to trauma patients. And if you're lucky enough to work in a place where the VBG has a really rapid turnaround time and you can do a lactate level on the VBG, then you'll get the base deficit and the lactate early in your resuscitation, which is when it really matters. Next, we're going to talk about how useful serial hematocrits are in the trauma patient. Okay, so we've talked about uh, blood gases, base deficit. For the last probably 20 years, some trauma centers have been using serial hematocrits to help predict who's going to crump or who's not going to crump. Do we still use serial hematocrits? Are they useful? How do they compare to these other lab values? So I think where they're probably the most useful is the probably not in the initial decision of OR versus not, but once you've decided that you're going to watch a patient and maybe they have an intra-abdominal injury, a splenic injury, a liver injury, a mesenteric injury, but there's some bleeding and you want to watch them, the serial hematocrits is going to be probably your best marker at that point. Uh, just adding that there's probably some evidence that an elevated lactate is a bad thing and that sort of goes hand in hand with the base deficit, but... I think we know complication rates with increased lactates in trauma patients show increased problems with respiratory complications, mortality, and infection rates. So that may be something to pay attention to. The other thing is that there's this concept of occult hypoperfusion, that patient may actually have a normal blood pressure, but their lactate clearance is really affected. And this is sort of more in an ICU setting but, or a long-term thing when you're following. But patients that fail to clear their lactate adequately tend to be the sicker patients. So a kind of a retrospective thing, but again, lactate may sort of twig you that this is a really sick patient that I've got here and better watch them carefully. So the initial blood test in the trauma bay that's probably the most important is the base deficit. But when you're following patients over time or when they're admitted, the serial hematocrits as well as serial lactates can be helpful in predicting who's going to do well and who's not going to do so well. Before we leave physiological parameters in predicting which patients are going to crump, we've got one last one to talk about, and that's the end title CO2. Okay, so we've talked about lactate, we've talked about serial hematocrits, we've talked about base deficit. The other thing that's a bit newer that people have been looking at is end-tidal CO2. Mike, could you tell us a little bit about what the literature says about how predictive end-tidal CO2 is for operative intervention in trauma? Sure. There was a paper recently that tried to correlate the odds of operative intervention in penetrating trauma patients, so a fairly unique group, but tried to correlate the nasal cannula end-tidal to basically to the lactate level and then to correlate that to patients that required operative in intervention. And in fact, the uh, higher the entitled CO2 correlated with an increased uh, risk of requiring operative intervention in this penetrating trauma group. So it seems to be an indirect reflection of the lactate and the acidosis. So it might be a useful tool to further study in these types of patients and perhaps expand it to our blood trauma patients as well and see what the experience shows. So on a practical level, Will you guys look at the end tidal CO2, base deficit, lactate, hematocrit, you get all those things and then you kind of put it together in your head, okay, this patient's sick, this patient's not sick. In those patients who might have a normal blood pressure, who it's not immediately obvious whether they're really sick or not, did you kind of put them all together or? Yes. Yeah. And I think it's a good point after we talk about each of these individually. You, you're never going to manage a trauma patient based on one lab value or one vital sign or one ultrasound finding. You, you put it all together. And so 
we have all these things. We have the vitals. We have the physical exam. We have the fast findings. You have your base deficit. You have your hematocrit. You have your bicarb. You're going to put them all together. You might have serial measurements of some of those things. You're going to put it all together. And from that, you're going to decipher what's the best thing for the patient. And so there's never going to be a magic rule that one of those numbers, you must do this for. So I think you got to keep that in mind. Problem I have with some of these papers is I think it's good work and we're looking for identifiers of sick patients and patients that are going to get into trouble. But I can't see the forest through the trees sometimes where we say, what was the real indication? And none of the papers really mention this. What was the, the trigger that made the surgeon say, this patient needs to go to the OR? Was it a CT scan? I don't think a surgeon's taken a patient to the OR based on base access minus eight. We got to go to the OR for that. So I think there are, like Dave says, uh, you have to put everything together. Two patients with the same CT scan with the same amount of bleeding in their abdomen, one may have metabolically deranged lab values and the other one may be normal. And that may be the trigger that puts the patient to the OR versus the CAT scan finding. Or the CAT scan finding in itself, despite what the, the lab shows, you know, it's a massive liver laceration. The patient's got to go to the ER, but they're perfectly stable and their, their blood work isn't that abnormal. I think that those are surgical indications as opposed to laboratory indications. So I think you have to put the whole picture together and look at the whole patient and, and make a decision. It's not that simple as measuring a blood gas or a lactate. So are you saying the human mind is the best decision rule out there? I kind of wondered that myself. Yeah. <laughs> Certainly not mine, Dave, but uh, <laughs> we're all going to be replaced by computers. <laughs> We've been talking about how severe acidosis is bad with a capital B in trauma, and we want to avoid it whenever we can. Let's say you've got a patient who's severely acidotic and their ABG or their VBG comes back and their pH is 6.9 despite your valiant resuscitation efforts. Is there any role for bicarb in these patients? So there was an interesting paper from uh, the Journal of Trauma within the last year, Trauma and Acute Care Surgery, that actually looked at this. So it did look retrospectively. So 225 patients they looked at 73 where severely acidotic trauma patients where bicarb was given. The average pH was 6.92. So these were quite sick patients. All of them had a pH of less than 7.1. And they actually followed their lab values and basically looked at a number of outcomes. And basically what they showed, if you give amps of bicarb, it does raise the bicarb in the serial blood work. It also raises the PCO2, and I think we often don't think of that. When you add bicarb in, some of that's going to get converted. If you remember our go way, go back, way back to biochemistry and our equation, a lot of that's going to get converted into CO2. So actually they found that the PaCO2 also rises. And they found that the PCO2 rise was associated with increased mortality. And despite the fact that sometimes these patients were being hyperventilated, their PaCO2 rose despite that. And so the bicarb has a significant effect on that. So they postulated that giving bicarb in these severely acidotic trauma patients may be a bad thing. Now, the problems with this, anytime you do a retrospective study, you can't establish the causality. And as we all know, we've seen that crumping patient that looks like they're going to die and you want to give them anything you can. And so... The ones that probably I would postulate, the patients that look like they're going to die, we do everything we can, including giving bicarb. So probably there's some selection bias. If you look at the patients that only give bicarb, I'm not surprised that those patients had a higher mortality. So I'm not sure from this paper we can get that, but I think I've always been a believer that 
bicarb. It's like if you swallow a strong base and you try to drink some acid to you know, neutralize the esophagus, not a good idea, or vice versa. can just potentially cause more damage. But I've always thought you, know, you should fluid resuscitate these people, give them blood, give them a massive transfusion protocol if they need, take them to the OR, stop their bleeding. But this might be a bit of evidence, although weak, that we shouldn't be giving bicarb to these patients. Before we leave predicting which trauma patients will crump, we haven't yet talked about ED ultrasound. Is there anything in the ultrasound literature recently that's been able to tell us which patients might crump? Well, no, but to answer that, I'm going to cheat a little bit and sneak into the CT literature. So there was a neat little paper in the Journal of Trauma last year that looked at IVC flatness. And I'll talk about what that means in a sec. So after we've talked about all these other things that are going through our mind in the resuscitation room, we've got the pre-hospital vitals, we've got the current vitals, we've got our uh, fast looking for free fluid, we've got our base excess, our lactate, our hematocrit. Do we really want another thing? But I'm going to suggest there might be something on the horizon. So this paper looked at the IVC flatness. It's basically a ratio of the, the transverse to AP ratio, and the cutoff they found was the best was 1.9. So if your IVC is twice as wide as it is AP distance or the height, then that's going to be a ratio of greater than or equal to 1.9, i.e. 2. So let's call that a flat IVC. And basically, they used CT, and I'll explain why in a second, but they looked at these patients that had a CT scan within one hour of arrival to the emergency department, and if your flatness ratio was greater than or equal to 1.9, these patients had an eight times mortality rate. So that's pretty high mortality from one simple thing. So I sort of wondered why didn't they use an ultrasound because it's right there in the emergency department and I'd wanna know if my patient's gonna be at that high of a risk. I don't wanna wait till the CT scanner. And really, I think part of the reason was they're surgeons and they maybe weren't as comfortable. They did comment also about that they said the IVC in previous studies could only correctly be identified by about 48% of emergency physicians. Maybe that's better now, but that's the reason why they thought to use the CT. But I actually wondered, and it's a bit of a stretch here, but can we actually look for the IVC on ultrasound, look at its flatness, and then use that as a predictor? And we might find in the future, in the next few years, that that's actually a very good predictor based on this study. This study showed a very good correlation with the flatness of the IVC. Mm-hmm. So I guess suffice to say, if you're one of those eMERGE docs who's well-trained in ultrasound and who's used to looking at the IVC for patients who are in septic shock, et cetera, this might be a useful thing for you. I'm sort of mixed about this paper because extrapolating to using ultrasound, if we're looking for a flat IVC, the patient's presumably under-resuscitated, and and hopefully we would have other sort of clinical signs that that's happening, and I'm not sure we need another test just to show us that the patient needs more volume and blood. The other thing is, if the patient is flat and the IVC is flat, we we, sh- we should have clinical signs that, that show that. Now, I, I'm not suggesting that we take hypotensive, shocky patients to the CAT scanner. Those patients are the ones that we all know should go to the OR directly. But, I mean, suffice it to say that we do take patients that are 
you know, not rock solid stable, like pseudo stable that, you know, respond to some crystalloid, seem to have a decent blood pressure. And you do have a bit of the luxury of time to take these patients to the scanner. And I think those are the patients that we're talking about here. In the study, it says that the patients that were taken there were done so for the usual indications that the CAT scanner was very close to the trauma bay or even in the trauma bay. So they may have been had the luxury of taking those patients that are less stable to the CT scan, getting them done in an expeditious fashion, rather than taking an unstable patient to you know a CAT scanner far away so it may certainly give us some more information as to the volume uh, resuscitation that the patient requires and to extrapolate that to ultrasound might be a, something to do in the future I agree yeah so I, I think certainly it's not ready for prime time again this is a study on CTE I'd maybe make a call out to the ultrasound gurus out there in a trauma center why not have a look at IVC ratios and patient outcomes and see if there's a correlation, something we can use. I guess I'd more wonder if it's, again, not something, not a one-point metric that you're going to make a decision solely on, but maybe it'll end up being like the base excess, which actually takes 15, 20 minutes to come back, but the IVC flatness I can get in three minutes. Yeah. So in review, a low blood pressure in a trauma patient we know is bad. But a normal blood pressure in a trauma patient, we don't know if that's bad or good. And so we need other things to help us along besides our fast and our, our clinical assessment. A base deficit seems to be one of the more popular things that can help us along. The lactate, the end tidal CO2, and serial hematocrits can help us as well. And many of these things can help us as we're going through the resuscitation when we do them serially to see which direction the patient is going in. In the future, it looks like there might be a role for IVC flatness. There was a startling difference in mortality, which we might be able to translate to ultrasound in the emergency department. Let's shift gears a little bit. We're still going to talk about this patient who crashed his motorcycle and had one low blood pressure. Let's say you want to intubate this patient. There's still some controversy over whether the laryngoscope we use should be the old-fashioned direct laryngoscope or video laryngoscope. Ron Walls predicts, for example, that video laryngoscope in a few years will be the go-to first-try tool of choice over the traditional direct laryngoscope for all emergency patients. Mike, what does the trauma literature say about what's the best type of laryngoscope for securing the airway in a trauma patient? I just want to step back one second and say that I think one of the most important things is to assess your airway before you even do anything to the patient as far as uh, intubating them. So, I mean, that's a really basic thing. And by definition, the traumatic airway is probably a difficult airway to start with, but there's difficult airways and then there's difficult airways. So, you know, the 300-pound person with no neck and you know, rheumatoid arthritis is different than the guy who's just got a C-spine collar on but anatomically is fine otherwise. There is some literature about whether or not we should be using a video laryngoscopy versus the standard laryngoscope and direct vision. I must admit that if I look at a patient and I see that this doesn't look like it's going to be terribly difficult, there's not any surprises, I, I will just use a direct laryngoscope for, for starters for sure, sedating and paralyzing the patient and having a look. If I'm unsure, I may even have a, try to have a look before giving any medications or just give a bit of a, a sedative to see if I can see anything. If I have a look in and I can see cords or I can see epiglottis, then I'll probably go ahead and give the paralytic. So I'm a pretty old-fashioned person that will use a direct laryngoscopy first. I'm a direct laryngoscopy person myself. 
my issue with the video laryngoscopy, we, we, the model we have is the glide scope. And to have a, a camera that kind of goes in and out, you need a plastic blade because it's very onerous to clean both a camera and a steel blade. So we have the plastic blade. In order for a plastic blade not to break, it must be a certain thickness. And so I just find that with our glide scope, the laryngoscope is, the plastic laryngoscope is much too thick and it limits its ease of use. So when I put it in there, it's very bulky. There's not much room for the tube to go in. It's hard to guide the tube around because the glide scope blade is so big and bulky. Anyway, that's my aside. That's been my issue with why I don't, I haven't gone right to the glide scope. And I think with the technology, a lot of people are still uncomfortable with it, but let's move to the paper. Then that was, this is from the journal of trauma this year. The title is effective video laryngoscopy on trauma patient survival, randomized control trial. So it was interesting. I haven't seen one like this where they actually randomized patients to either be intubated by their glide scope or direct laryngoscopy. Good number of patients. It was done out of Baltimore at the shock trauma center and they had total of 623 patients, which is actually quite good for an intubation trial. The video laryngoscopy group had 303, and the direct laryngoscopy group had 320. Again, very good numbers. And just to jump to, the, to their findings, they found overall there was no mortality difference, although it was 9% in the video laryngoscopy versus 8% in the direct laryngoscopy. And they further went to break down the mortality, which might be the interesting point of the paper. They found that patients with severe head injury if you were intubated with the video laryngoscopy, had a 30% mortality versus direct laryngoscopy, 14%. So that's just to give you an idea of the numbers. It's not massive numbers. 22 out of 70 severe head injuries with video laryngoscopy for the 30% and direct was 16 out of 112 died. So that's 14%. But that was statistically significant. The numbers were big enough. The second point that they looked at then was the intubation time and the desaturation below 80%. And with video laryngoscopy, average intubation time was 56 seconds and direct laryngoscopy, 40 seconds. So 16 seconds quicker may or may not be important, but it was statistically significant. And the desaturation below 80%, 50% with video laryngoscopy versus 24% with direct laryngoscopy. Again, it was statistically significant. And, you know, half the patients desatting to me, I don't think that's insignificant. So having said all that, I still think that the, the glide scope's a good backup for a difficult airway. So if I can't see with a direct laryngoscopy, I will use it. So I'm not completely condemning it. I don't think, I think that point should be made. And then go on and say all the adjuncts too, like your bougie and all the difficult airway things should be, you know, remember that and keep that on your cart. And just to get back to the bulkiness factor, I find I often, I want the bougie with the glide scope because it's very hard for me to maneuver the tube around the glide scope in my mind. Yeah, I personally, every time I've used the Glidescope, it's been as a backup to the direct laryngoscope. And every time I use a Glidescope in that situation, I do Glidescope with Bougie. And I find that to be a great backup in those difficult airways. So the first part of this episode was trying to predict who was going to crump. The second part of the episode is going to be an update on damage control resuscitation. 
So in episode 10, we talked about this relatively new concept of damage control resuscitation. And just to remind our listeners of what DCR is, it consists of five parts. Avoiding hypothermia, permissive hypotension, the one-to-one-to-one RBC FFP platelet transfusion, coagulopathy correction, and damage control surgery. If you need a refresher on exactly what all of that means, it's all in episode 10. So there's still controversy as to whether damage control resuscitation should be used in trauma. The first part, avoiding hypothermia, I think everyone would agree is sensible and worthwhile. And we talked about how to avoid hypothermia in episode 10. But what about the second part, permissive hypotension? There's been some recent literature on this that can be quite confusing. Dave, what is your take on permissive hypotension? Which patients should we be using it for, if any? And in which patients should we be aiming for a normal blood pressure? Should we be using it in patients with major head injury, knowing that a single reading of hypotension in patients with a major head injury doubles their mortality? So... It's an area, I think, where a lot more research is needed. There have been a little snippets come out in the literature here and there. But I think the bottom line is you have to look at a number of things when you're thinking about a permissive hypotension approach to your patient. So probably a big one is the time it's going to be to a definitive OR or treatment. Maybe it's interventional radiology, embolization of a spleen. I think where we're at now Permissive hypertension is not something you want to do for hours and hours. It's something that's a short bridge to get to the OR. Given our lack of evidence, we think maybe there's some validity to not over-resuscitating a patient because whatever the injury is, whether it's a spleen or liver, maybe some clot is formed temporarily, and that the whole theory is if you over-resuscitate, you may bust or break the clot and actually cause more bleeding. So in terms of where we are, I think... It's probably something you can look at doing for maybe one to two hours. Again, this is not based on any evidence. You need to look at who your patient is, what their normal blood pressure is. And I think you want to, in the heavily bleeding patient that you've decided needs OR and your patient's en route, you can probably maintain a blood pressure systolic 90 to 100, just again with the lack of evidence. A special group, as you mentioned, would be the head injury patient. That's a group where we know that if they have any episode of hypotension with a a moderate to severe head injury, it does predict a bad outcome or a worse outcome. Now, that's not to say that the hypotension caused it, but at this point, we're not sure. And so we should probably avoid permissive hypotension in those patients and try to maintain probably at least over 100 systolic blood pressure. With regards to the head injury, some people recommend keeping a mean arterial pressure of sort of 90 or greater. I agree. There's not a whole lot of great evidence. The, the permissive hypotension sort of bandwagon started in the 90s with the trial in Houston where they looked at the penetrating trauma, truncal trauma patients, and uh, found that there was a trend towards decreased mortality when they pre-hospital teams did nothing rather than give the standard ATLS fluid resuscitation. And you have to read these studies with a little bit of caution in that this is maybe something that we can't all practice at home because the short transport times in, in an urban center coming to a center that sees tons of penetrating trauma every year with a trauma surgeon waiting in the OR. So it's, it's probably not uh, generalizable to most of our practices. 
I think a good standard sort of rule of thumb for me is if the patient is not head injured and they're awake, alert, and conscious, and they have a radial pulse, I'm probably happy with that regardless of what their blood pressure is. And again, Dave, you bring up the point that a normal blood pressure is variable for your patient population. I mean, uh, a young, healthy male versus an octogenarian, they're going to have different baseline blood pressures, and one may be hypotensive for, for one patient severely hypotensive and normal for the others. So suffice to say, permissive hypotension would be reasonable in a patient who would normally have a normal blood pressure. So we're not talking about people who have normally have blood pressures of 180 or people that normally have blood pressures of 90, but in your average person, permissive hypertension would be reasonable for a short period of time, just as a bridge to the OR in penetrating trauma, where we actually have not bad evidence that it might be useful. We don't really have any good evidence in blunt trauma, which is by far the vast majority of trauma we see in Canada. And we want to avoid permissive hypertension in head injured patients. I think people are extending the trend in blunt trauma patients. Again, not achieving a normal blood pressure of 130 or one, you know, 120 or over 80. But like I said before, allowing patient to have a, a normal mental status and a peripheral pulse is probably still acceptable even in blunt trauma. But yeah, the evidence is really not clear. And I would agree. I think it's been spread to blunt just for lack of better evidence to this point. So when it comes to permissive hypotension, the newest ATLS update from January of 2013 talks a bit about how we shouldn't be aggressively resuscitating patients, which kind of hints at this permissive hypotension idea. And there are some changes in there in terms of your initial resuscitation fluids. Dave, could you just update us on what these newest guidelines say? ATLS has been maybe a little on the slow side to change things. So probably the big one to note is the term aggressive resuscitation, in quotes, has been eliminated. And instead of a standard two-liter initial crystalloid bolus, they've changed it to recommend a one-liter crystalloid bolus. So it's probably for a couple of reasons. I think you mentioned the one of they're probably recognizing that maybe there is something to permissive hypotension, again, even given the lack of evidence. But maybe the second thing is with all the focus on what's the proper ratio of how we should resuscitate a patient. So the one-to-one-to-one -to -one -to -one ratio, which we're going to talk about in a few minutes, I think it probably recognizes that, that we don't want to over-resuscitate with just saline, that you should probably move to blood products quicker than we used to. Just a point uh, that sort of ties in with the point that you made about the ATLS recommendations about giving less crystalloid and switching to blood products sooner. There was a paper from Journal of Trauma, I think from 2012, that said a little goes a long way and that the, the crystalloid to pack cell ratio should be looked at. And once you decide that the patient's going to need blood, you better cut back on the crystalloid. And they found that if you gave greater than 1.5 liters to one unit of packed red cells, if the ratio was greater than that, that is you're giving more crystalloid than, than the ratio of 1.5 liters to one unit, then you had an increased incidence of ARDS, abdominal compartment syndrome, and multi-system organ failure. So morbidity was affected in this study, but mortality was not. However, I think you want to stay out of trouble if you can and give the blood products, which are what the patient needs rather than the crystalloid. Yeah, I would agree. And you know, I was I kind of liked when that paper came out in the literature because 
We've probably all seen that patient that's maybe it's been three hours from their trauma. They're massively bleeding. They had to get transferred to a trauma surgeon. And you look at what they've had, and they've had maybe 10 units of blood and some platelets and FFP, but they've had eight or nine liters of normal saline. And I think probably we realize now that's not appropriate or probably harmful. And now we sort of have a bit of evidence that said that. The other thing about normal saline, it's something I think you need to be conscious of in your resuscitation bay because it's easy when everybody's looking at that blood pressure of 70 on 40, everybody's natural reaction is to open up every single IV no matter what's hanging. And so you really got to be conscious and say, no, actually, we want to open up the blood and the FFP and platelets. We don't actually want to open up the saline. So initial leader, and then maybe if you're waiting for more, you can give a little bit more to temporize, but really you want to be focused on blood products in those patients. Yeah, that brings up the third part of damage control resuscitation is this idea of a one-to-one ratio of red cells, FFP, and platelet transfusions. First, how do we tell which patients require activation of a massive transfusion protocol? So I think that's probably one of the biggest challenges in identifying and and looking for these patients. I mean, patient comes through the door, you you don't really know who's going to respond to a bit of crystalloid. You give a unit of blood and they stabilize them. And there's no sort of magic future scope that sort of we've decided on uh, who gets a massive transfusion initiated. I think once we give a unit of packed cells, then I think we're all now sort of more suspicious that maybe these patients are going to require massive transfusions. There is a little bit of literature on it, but it's, I'm not sure how useful it is. Uh, there was an Australian paper in Journal of Trauma that looked at identifying the bleeding trauma patients, uh, predictive factors for massive transfusion. And what they found, basically, the independent uh, predictors of patients that require a lot of blood were a base deficit, again, of greater than 5, were coagulopathic with an INR greater than 1.5 on presentation, as well as having uh, some intra-abdominal blood identified either on uh, CT or fast examination. So, I mean, those are some early predictors perhaps we can use to, to identify patients. I think one of the things with a decision rule like that is... It's sort of a whole spectrum of who will need a massive transfusion. So when you get a gunshot to the abdomen where maybe it's gotten a major vessel in the liver or the spleen and they're massively bleeding, you're going to know in 15 minutes because you've already given four units of blood, your O negative blood or O positive, and you need more blood. And so right away, that kind of patient, I think you're going to activate the massive transfusion protocol. That paper then sort of looks at base deficit, which is not going to be back at that point. Maybe you haven't even had a chance to draw the blood yet. So I think maybe that paper is looking at the patients who maybe it'll take two or three hours of bleeding before they maybe ongoing bleeding spleen or liver or pelvis. So we don't use a rule at St. Mike's per se, but probably most of our general guideline in our head would be once you've hit a third or fourth unit and you're already thinking you'll need more blood, we would go right ahead to ask for the massive transfusion protocol. Again, given sort of a lack of a better rule that's out there. There are certainly a lot of patients where if they had a venous bleed in the pelvis, they might get three or four units and then stabilize in your pelvic binder and they actually don't need any more blood than that. So I think we've got to keep in mind, most patients that bleed, this is a very, very small percentage will actually need a massive transfusion. Yeah, I agree with that. I think we do the same thing once you start giving you know, your third or fourth unit of blood, that's sort of the trigger that uh, says, okay, we got to start thinking about giving lots of blood products. So the newest ATLS guideline recommendations for initial fluid resuscitation say 
give one liter bolus normal saline or ringer's lactate. There's some experts that are saying now not to give any ringer's lactate or normal saline and go straight to blood. And remember that when you are giving blood, try and minimize the ongoing fluid resuscitation. When should you start thinking about a massive transfusion protocol? Well, from a practical perspective, after the third or fourth unit of packed red blood cells, and once you get your blood work and imaging back, if there's a significant base deficit or an INR more than 1.5 or significant free fluid found on your FAST or on your CT exam, that's when you should start thinking about a massive transfusion protocol. Next, we're going to run through what the actual massive transfusion protocol looks like. Let's say you've gone to your third unit of red cells and you've decided to activate your massive transfusion protocol. Can you just give us an idea of what that exactly looks like? You know, there's the one to one to one ratio and people talk about different ratios. What's sort of the common standard ratio now? So the first thing I'd probably say is let's keep in mind, this is something we're not going to be doing very often. And because of that, it's something that's probably worth having a hospital protocol at your center for. The last thing you want to be doing in a very sick patient is thinking about a ratio and what am I going to tell the lab and what did I just give 15 minutes ago because I got to make sure I equalize it. It's worth just developing a protocol. So our particular one was developed in conjunction with our trauma service and internal medicine team and emergency team and uh, hematologists. We give six units of pack cells, five units of platelets, which is one pack of platelets, and four units of FFP. So ours is 654, which is close to one-to-one-to-one. That's just what our collective group decided based on the evidence that's out there. So we've been, I don't know, blessed or cursed with the fact that in the last number of years, we've been a study group. (laughs) So largely the transfusion practice has been dictated by the proper trial, which is going on now at our group. So if we gave one unit of blood and the patient had blood pressure that was low or a tachycardia, we would get randomized to either a lab parameter-driven transfusion protocol versus the attempted one-to-one-to-one ratio. And if you did trigger that, then you would get a pack from the blood bank that would just basically, you'd start giving a balanced transfusion of pack cells, fresh frozen, and platelets as, as accurately as could to one-to-one. The other alternative is the, the lab parameter driven, which is the sort of more traditional thing we did in the past where, you know, you send off a hemoglobe and you find the hemoglobe is less, less than 70, and then you start giving pack cells. The INR is greater than 1.5, you start giving FFP, and the platelets, depending on whether they're head injured or not, is below 50 or 100, then you start transfusing platelets. So it was more of a lab parameter traditional protocol. That brings up You had mentioned the trial that's ongoing at Sunnybrook with Jeannie Callum, who we had in episode 37, I believe it was, on transfusions, anticoagulants, and bleeding. She didn't talk about it then because we knew we were going to be doing this episode on trauma. Can you just tell us a little bit about that trial that just got published a couple of months ago uh, regarding the one-to-one-to-one ratio in trauma patients? It's a preliminary report, basically, on the transfusion protocol of giving one-to-one-to-one to to our trauma patients, published in CMAJ in September of this year, in 2013. 
And it really was a feasibility study. And what they meant by that was if we wanted to randomize patients to either one-to-one-to-one versus a laboratory-driven protocol, could we actually do it? And the results are pretty convincing that we can, or at least we can get a large proportion of the patients into the group that we want. What I mean by that is, can you achieve close to one to one to one in a high percentage of patients that you actually randomize to that group? And I think it was over 70% of patients got the protocol that they would get the one to one to one in an accurate ratio. The interesting preliminary results, although it's small numbers still, were that the mortality in the one-to-one-to-one group was actually higher than the group that was just the protocol-driven group, which I think comes as a surprise to a lot of us. And the other interesting point, which I think comes out of this, which is important for utilization of blood products, is that there was a higher rate of wastage of fresh frozen plasma in the one-to-one-to-one protocol, where... The fresh frozen plasma, as you know, needs to get thawed, and then if it doesn't get used, you can't refreeze it, and then you have to give it to another patient. Now, just an aside on the implication of that, remember the universal donor for fresh frozen plasma is AB positive, which is only 4% of our population. And there's also been an increased incident in transfusion reactions, or TRALI, transfusion-related acute lung injury, if you use female AB positive donors. So you've already now got 4% of the population who can donate AB-positive plasma, and now you're taking 60% of those that are male. So you have a very rare commodity in AB-positive blood. If you're thawing it and then not using it, you kind of wonder about the utilization of our blood products. So that was the two major points that came out of this feasibility trial. I don't think we know the answer yet to, to the correct ratio, and that's what the study will go on to look at. And that's the ratio of one-to-one-to-one and one-to-one-to-two, whether one-to-one-to-two is a a ratio we can live with with giving red cells in twice as much as the packed cells in the fresh frozen. So while there are a couple studies in the military literature that showed a mortality benefit for massive transfusion protocols of a one-to-one-to-one ratio that we discussed in episode 10, this study out of the Canadian Medical Association Journal of September of 2013, where Jeannie Callum was one of the authors, shows that there's actually an all-cause 28-day mortality increase in the one-to-one-to-one ratio group. So this was a feasibility study, and we're still waiting for the proper trial, which compares the one-to-one-to-one ratio with a one-to-one-to-two ratio to try and get some more data about this. The other thing is, as we discussed in episode 10, there was a survival bias in these older studies which is perhaps why they did show a mortality benefit. And that's what we're going to discuss now. We did talk in episode 10 about the idea of survival bias and that that might be the reason why this one-to-one-to-one ratio has a survival benefit over a lower ratio protocol that we've used in previous times. Then there's been some new studies since we talked last time. There was the PROMPT study. Could you just explain the problem with survivor bias again? and what they found in the prompt study that might have changed our minds. So survival bias is a problem that we noticed in the early papers with studying the the transfusion ratios of 1 to 1 to 1. And these patients came in and they were all quite critically ill and needing massive transfusions. And if you looked at the ratios of the blood products to the fresh frozen plasma, you would look at the study and find that the patients that received a higher ratio of fresh frozen to red cells seemed to do better and survive longer and, and their mortality was decreased. 
The problem with this is that it takes time to give fresh frozen plasma because it needs to be thawed. So the average time for the transfusion of the first unit of pack cells was about 15 minutes, and it was probably greater than an hour for fresh frozen plasma. So if you were a patient that died within the first hour, you only got red cells, and therefore, by the fact that you died before you could get fresh frozen plasma, you had an inherently lower ratio of fresh frozen to red cells. It just goes to, to, to reason that if you didn't get the fresh frozen, then you're in a low ratio and you died. So it's not that you died because you got a lower ratio, but it's you got a lower ratio because you died before you could get it. So I think we mentioned that last time. A couple studies have tried to look at uh, correcting this, and it all has to do with looking at the time intervals as to when patients receive and, and looking at mortality within those time intervals. The PROMPT study was the uh, Prospective Observational Multicenter Major Trauma Transfusion Study, published in the Archives of Surgery in uh, October of last year, 2012. And what they tried to do is look in the first 30 minutes and, and then subsequently each hour to the six-hour interval at the transfusion ratios and look at the survival rates within those specified time intervals so that they're actually trying to compare a little bit more apples with apples than, rather than apples to oranges. They did find that there was a trend towards increased survival in, in the groups, even in those early periods that managed to get fresh frozen plasma to red cell ratios that were higher. So it does kind of try to correct for it. I don't think it's perfect, though. They didn't really mention if the groups were comparable. And the other thing that kind of worries me is when you read their methodology, they say that they started off looking at uh, these transfusion ratios, and then they decided they wanted to change their protocol a little bit. And the reason for doing that was they said, well, we're going to start uh, looking at patients at 31 minutes because we figure that's where we can, I think, start to get fresh frozen available. Or the patient needs to have had three units of blood products before the 31-minute mark. But this was sort of a change in their original hypothesis. I think in the end, though, they still are comparing mortality and ratios within the time intervals. And so they've tried to look at correcting for that survivor bias. Their conclusions were the patients that had ratios of less than one to two were three to four times more likely to die than the patients that achieved one to one or higher. So, I mean, I'm not sure it's a perfect study, but it's certainly, again, sort of trending towards looking like one-to-one's a good idea. Unfortunately, I think the perfect study would be to have unlimited amounts of blood products available for randomizing patients into either a one-to-one or a, a low ratio, but that's just not practically feasible for any center, I don't think. I think the prompt was a good attempt to try to look more closely at survival bias. I would point to another article. So this is one out of Sweden. It was in Critical Care Medicine 2013, and it's called Effective Plasma to RBC Ratios in Trauma Patients, a Cohort Study with Time-Dependent Data. And it actually found a different result. So they actually did what they called a time-dependent analysis. They actually mapped when the patients had their plasma, their platelets, their RBCs, looked at when they died, and they actually mapped it sort of minute to minute And they basically came to the conclusion there was no difference in mortality rates with a time-dependent analysis. There was a slight trend in favor of a better ratio of the one-to-one-to-one, but it was not statistically significant. And they also note, which is interesting, that when they took the same group, the same data, and they did a non-time-dependent analysis, like most of the other retrospective studies have done, they actually showed a, a benefit of the ratio. 
So this to me is some compelling evidence that, you know, we probably got to look at this a lot closer because this to me is something that there's so many factors that go into who actually got the one-to-one and who didn't, that it's not something we can look at retrospectively. So I think what we really need is a proper randomized trial, which is being done right now. It's called the the proper study. It's a multi-center trial. Now, the only problem is we're only going to get two different ratios. It's not going to be transfuse as you like versus one-to-one. It's going to be one-to-one-to-one versus one-to-one-to-two. And of course, the two is the red blood cells. So they're actually randomizing patients into one-to-one-to-one versus one-to-one-to-two. And I think until those results come out, which hopefully should happen in the next couple of years, I think we don't really know. Okay, so so far we've got three studies, which are one study is a positive study that says one-to-one-to-one is beneficial. The other one has maybe a trend towards benefit, and the other one says that there's no benefit. So... I think that's a good point. The jury's still out on this question. You know, if you ask somebody what's the best ratio to give, I think I don't think anyone can conclusively say this is the one to give. So it looks like we're going to try this for a while, and we'll see what happens. Yeah. Okay. I, suffice to say that we don't want to be loading them with liters and liters and liters of normal saline, and then finally decide to give them red cells. And then when we do give them red cells, not to just give red cell and red cell and red cell before we start giving plasma and, and platelets. Yeah, and I would agree. And I think what we always have to do, and this is the same with a lot of topics in emergency medicine, we don't yet have the right evidence, so we have to use the best evidence. And to me, the best evidence now says, let's in the massively transfused patients, let's try to give one-to-one-to-one as best we can until there's more evidence out. And I would agree, limit the saline. Don't pour in liters of saline. And I think just to add to that, what we're really trying to do is prevent coagulopathy. In the majority of the cases, this is the main problem with the massive transfusions, also hypothermia and acidosis, like you mentioned. But I think it makes sense. If you don't want to become coagulopathic, you got to give some fresh frozen. Yeah. And probably most importantly, let's just take a big step back. And we're talking about managing the massive transfusion. But let's keep in mind, the most important goal is to stop their bleeding. So while this is going on, you can't forget to bind the pelvis get them to the OR if they need it, get them to angioembolization if they need it. So let's keep in mind the end goal. This is something we're doing to temporize, you know. Mm -hmm. So all those things we talked about in episode 10. Absolutely. Before we leave damage control resuscitation, Dave, can you tell us what's on the horizon in terms of new concepts for damage control resuscitation? There's a good review paper in the journal Trauma from 2013 It's called Practical Application of of Point-of-Care Coagulation Testing to Guide Treatment Decisions in Trauma. So I just wanted to mention it briefly. We're not ready for prime time, but they're looking at a lot of different measurements, point-of-care testing. And the most common one they talk about is thromboelastography, or TEG, and rotational thromboelastometry. I want to confuse you with the terms, and that's called ROTEM, and that's one you'll hear about. Our center is one of the ones looking at that. But this is maybe on the horizon where I know we're studying very carefully whether what's the best ratio of products to give. But people are also looking at, are there any point-of-care bleeding tests we can do in the trauma room, point-of-care, or in the resuscitation room that are going to guide what products we should give? So if the test shows this, you actually need more platelets. And if the test shows this, you need cryo or you need FFP or you need more blood. And I just wanted to mention that it's on the horizon You can have a look at this paper, and there are other bedside point-of-care testing that's being looked at as well. So we might be doing a whole new chapter on this in two or three years. But 
for now, it's not ready for prime time, but just be aware that these tests are being studied to see whether they have a place in the management of the massively bleeding patient. It's probably the most accurate way to look at the integrity of a blood clot that's being formed. We know now that the INR and PTT and just measuring platelets are really not that useful, and they don't really tell us about the physiologic clot formation, whereas uh, the TEG and ROTEM do. Depending on the shape of the curve that you get from this study, it will tell you whether or not, okay, the problem is I need platelets, the problem is hyperfibrinolysis, and I need tranexamic acid, or I need more clotting factors. And sort of based on these coagulation patterns that you get from the ROTEM, it will help guide your therapy. And I think in the really massively transfused bleeding patient, these might be a good way to guide us in our transfusion practices. So just to clarify, it spits out a curve. Based on that curve, it'll tell you whether they need more platelets, plasma, cryo, or tranexamic acid. Correct. Yes. Wow. That's pretty awesome. I'm fixing a hole where the rain gets in and stops my mind from wandering. In the second part of this episode, I'd like to talk about imaging decision-making. So let's throw out a case there. You're the overnight doc at a community hospital. A 42-year-old male is the driver of a truck that loses control and ends up in a ditch at 4 a.m. on a rural road. He comes in yelling profanities, and his vital signs are a heart rate of 80, respiratory rate of 16, blood pressure of 115 on 80, and he's satting 97% on room air. And his GCS is about 14 or 15. So this is a guy who looks pretty stable. You manage to secure two large bore IVs. You give him O2 by mask and he's log rolled. Again, his GCS is about 14 or 15 and he smells of alcohol. He's complaining of pain everywhere. And after your primary and secondary surveys, you've identified that he's got a scalp laceration and a distal radius fracture, but he's still complaining of pain everywhere and seems to be tender everywhere. His initial fast is negative. So we see a lot of these patients who don't immediately make our sphincters tighten up. You know, this patient isn't crashing. They don't look that sick, but it's the middle of the night. And often we have a lot of decision-making in terms of whether these patients need to be transferred to a trauma center or whether they can be managed at the community hospital. So we've got this 42-year-old drunk guy involved in an MVC with a scalp lack and a distal radius fracture, normal vitals, a GCS of 14 or 15, and a very difficult assessment. So Mike, first, what imaging would you do for this patient and why? Let's start with plain films. Which, if any, plain films would you do? And in particular, is there any role for C-spine x-ray in the multiply injured patient, or should all of these patients get their C-spine CT'd? It's a good question, and this is a really challenging case because we work in uh, tertiary care centers where we have pretty much everything to our disposal. If you're in a rural place and, and you don't have necessarily easy access to CAT scanning, et cetera, or trauma teams, then I think your decisions become a little more difficult to make. So I think with this guy, there's arguments both ways. I'll give you the answer in a little bit, but I think the surgeons would say these patients based on mechanism should get a PAN scan. And that was sort of a prevailing attitude in mid 2000 to onward. And the reason was that they didn't want to miss anything. They didn't want to miss any injuries. And as it turns out, the PAN scanning actually just 
did pick up small things, but their significance was questionable. So for him, as far as his neck is concerned, a couple things. The G says is 14, so he's somewhat unreliable now, so I'm not sure how much we can rely on our, on our physical exam if he has any tenderness or not. Again, there's this whole issue of a distracting injury, which we can talk about as well. But I think in this gentleman, I probably would end up scanning his head and his neck based on mechanism and unreliability of examination. I know that's uh, controversial. There is a role for C-spine x-rays, however, in not this patient necessarily, but in the patients that you know the Canadian C-spine rule would apply to. And those are patients that have sort of minor mechanisms of injury or trauma, and they are evaluatable in your department. I think that's still a useful role for plain x-ray, and I would use it for that. But for this, I think, sort of moderately severe mechanism, I would probably end up scanning the patient at least observing him in precautions, C-spine precautions, until he sobers up and then perhaps reevaluate him. Dave? So my take on this patient, I think there's the initial workup in the resuscitation room. And so I would want to see in this patient a chest and pelvis x-ray and the fast you've already given us. Those are my three initial because I want to make sure that there's no obvious evidence of bleeding and that he's not at risk of going unstable shortly. There's literature saying you probably maybe don't have to do the pelvis x-ray, but if you're saying he's got pain all over, so he's presumably he's tender on his pelvis, I want to make sure there's not a big pelvis fracture, which if I'm in a rural setting is going to make me transfer him out a lot quicker. Once you get your chest x-ray, pelvis x-ray, and fast, you've got a pretty good snapshot of does this patient need to go somewhere right now? Or is he potentially a patient I can watch and, and think about a workup more delayed? The second thing is about CT scanning. So Mike, you mentioned CT head and C-spine. It's hard without the patient right in front of me. I tend to with these patients, and this is working in the emergency department, not as trauma team leader, but I tend to not do a CT of the C-spine unless I have a good reason not to. And there are, I guess, a number of reasons, but one might be this a recent paper that came out that maybe validates that a little bit. So it's called CT for all or selective approach. Who really needs a cervical spine CT after blunt trauma? So this is from Journal of Trauma of this year, 2013. And basically what it looks at is over 5,000 patients, so quite a lot. Now this was only trauma team activation, so this is a selective group. And even in this really high-risk group, they had a 6.25% incidence of C-spine fracture. And the authors argue that that's actually quite low and that we're doing 93% of our CT scans are negative and that maybe we should have better rules about who we do it on. And I must say, when I'm working in the department, very often I'll see somebody that's fallen down or head injured or maybe intoxicated that fell down. Like this patient had an accident who was intoxicated. And you decide you want a CT head, which I think is fine because that's probably a potentially life-threatening and time-dependent diagnosis you want to make. But I hear a lot of, let's just throw on the C-spine because they're going to the scanner anyway. And I have a little bit of an issue with that is, First of all, I, I don't think it's as time-sensitive a diagnosis. And when they see a fracture, all you're going to do is the same thing you're doing is keep the collar on. And neurosurgery, it's not generally an urgent thing that needs to be done. You're going to leave them in the collar, and maybe that's their only treatment is leaving them in the collar. So my take on these patients is to let's leave the collar on. Let's reassess them when they're sober. So if you ask me what test do I want in this patient, I'd like the chest X-ray, pelvis X-ray, and fast. I'd consider the CT head. Depends on the availability. Again, is what he looks like. He's intoxicated, so we can throw our head injury decision rules out the door. And really, we're probably going with our gestalt. 
but I would not CT the C-spine unless I had a good reason to. I would just leave the patient in the collar. The argument to doing it is, one, the amount of radiation that you're really adding on to this study is pretty minimal. Two, the fact that if you do reassess the patient in the morning and he's going to be sore in the neck and midline pain, you're going to have to take him back to the scanner for a second trip. And finally, I think all of us are really worried about the high price that we would pay for missing in a significant C-spine fracture. And I'm not saying that every patient that I see who has any head injury gets a CT of the C-spine, but I would accept a high negative scan rate just because the the stakes are so high. Let's talk about the radiation dose because that's relevant. So, <laughs> so a couple points about radiation doses. The scanners are getting better and better. Our center's now using what they call low-dose protocols where they can, based on your body weight and body habitus, they can minimize the dose. But if you look at kind of what's quoted for radiation doses, so a chest X-ray is 0.04 millisieverts, CT head is 3, CTC spine 4.9. So a CTC spine actually is about 100 chest X-rays. I'm not sure that's negligible radiation. It's, and it's more than doubling what you would have just done for the CT head. So I think it's something we got to think about. Yeah. I mean, again, it depends on the age of the patient. Throwing in a C-spine CT for an 83-year-old with osteoporosis, that would be much more reasonable than if you have a 20-year-old kid who's had a head injury. You're not really suspecting much on the C-spine. Maybe that would be the patient that you would hold back on the CT C-spine. And I would agree. I think, yeah, all, when we're talking about cancer risk and radiation doses, it is age-dependent. So I think certainly the older person, I'm probably less likely to be as concerned. And probably higher risk for an injury as well. Yes, exactly. I agree. Yes, more brittle C-spine. This guy in this case has a distal radius fracture. That brings up the idea of distracting injuries. Now, the Canadian C-spine rules don't have distracting injury as part of it, which actually is for me what makes it nice. But the nexus criteria do have distracting injury as one of the criteria to trigger imaging of the C-spine. The definition of distracting injury has always been a bit vague, and most multiply injured patients have lots of injuries that may or may not be distracting. Dave, how do you decide which injuries are distracting enough to trigger imaging? I think it depends on the amount of pain it causes and the proximity to the cervical spine. Because, of course, we all know about referred pain. And if there's a major injury very close to the C-spine, it can be very difficult to tell where somebody's pain or tenderness is coming from. But I would point to an article. This was in uh, Journal of Trauma in 2012. And it's called Clinical Clearance of the Cervical Spine in Patients with Distracting Injuries. It is time to dispel the myth. And you know, it's always fun to me when an article comes out in the literature that sort of validates what you always thought. And so if you get a healthy, awake, non-intoxicated person come in with, even, even if they have a pelvis or femur fracture, it's so far away from the C-spine, you're going to tell me that I can't clear that C-spine when they have absolutely no tenderness. And it really didn't make a lot of sense to me. And this paper actually kind of validates that. So they had 761 trauma patients. They had a, what they called a distracting injury, which they defined as any intracranial head injury, any intra-abdominal organ injury, and then a long bone fracture. So those are fairly significant, not something simple like a single rib fracture. They asked the physicians then in these patients, examine them and who would you clear clinically if we let you right now? 
of the 761, 461 of them, they actually would have said, yes, I would clear this patient. They kept the collar on. All the patients had a CT scan of their C-spine, and they looked at would they have missed any injuries. And basically, there was only one out of the 461 patients that they would have cleared actually had a missed fracture. And if you actually look at that patient, it was a lateral mass C2 fracture. It was a 34-year-old with a frontal contusion, a mandible, and humerus fracture. So... I must say, in a patient with a with a, a humerus and a mandible fracture, I'm probably a little more worried about clearing that C-spine. So those probably aren't the group of patients I would have cleared anyway. But I think this paper lends some credence to the fact that we probably have overstated this distracting injury thing. And probably, I think, you it's, it's fairly safe to clear if you feel that you can get a reliable exam on the C-spine. You both had mentioned that a chest x-ray would be standard protocol for pretty much every multiply injured patient. There was a recently published paper called The Nexus Chest, Validation of a Decision Instrument for Selective Chest Imaging in Blunt Trauma, and they tried to look at which patients you didn't need to do a chest x-ray on, something like the Ottawa ankle rules, but for blunt trauma of the chest. Uh, Mike, what, what does this study tell us, if anything, about who needs a chest x-ray in the blunt trauma patients? So the study looked at excluding some patients. They wanted to find out who they didn't need to do any imaging on. The patients that they did end up imaging and found that uh, they had patients that had significant injuries, or those that were 60 years of age or, or greater, had a rapid deceleration mechanism. They defined that as a fall of greater than 20 feet or a, a motor vehicle accident of greater than 40 miles per hour. Patients who had chest pain, intoxication, abnormal mental status, or a distracting painful injury, or tenderness to the chest wall. So that's a pretty all-encompassing group that you would image. And, uh, and the other thing about the study was they just looked at whether they got imaging or not, and they didn't specify just a chest x-ray. Some patients had CT scans of the chest, others had CT of the abdomen with uh, some imaging of the chest at the upper cups of the abdomen. So there wasn't a real protocol as to which imaging should be required for these patients. I'm not sure that the nexus chest rule actually helps me very much because all those reasons are reasons that I would x-ray patients. And the sensitivity is very high for the rule, but you're not eliminating the imaging of a lot of patients. So the specificity was very low. So I think uh, you're not really saving a whole lot using this rule for imaging the chest in blood trauma. Yeah, I would agree. When I actually look at the rule, the big thing that stands out to me is they already x-rayed more than I would have. It It doesn't decrease what I already x-ray. So therefore, how is the rule going to help me? So any chest injury with the presence of pain, I mean, I'm not getting an x-ray on all of those patients. It depends on what the mechanism was and what your findings are. I think a decision rule of maybe where I can avoid a CT scan where there's significant radiation is important. But, you know, the small amount of radiation with a chest x-ray is probably not worth chasing down in my mind. And so we've talked about the criteria for not needing a chest x-ray and blunt trauma. How about indications for CT of the chest in particular? You had mentioned that's where we'd be maybe more concerned about radiation. Dave, what patients need to go on to have their chest scanned? Let's say you've done a chest x-ray. There is another rule called the SCRAP rule, which looks at the indications for CT chest and blunt trauma. Which patients need to go on to have a CT chest? So... In my mind, I think this is an area that we potentially can save a lot of radiation. So I'm going to leave the scrap rule aside for one second. I think in my mind, 
the injuries we need to know about, for the most part, are going to be on a chest X-ray. I want to know if the patient has a hemothorax or a pneumothorax. I can supplement that with my fast exam in the trauma room. The ones that I can't see on the chest X-ray that I care about are an aortic injury and a T-spine fracture. A few small rib fractures, a tiny hemothorax or a tiny pneumothorax, I don't really need to know about. Now there's evidence with the occult hemoneumothorax, which we might get into in a, later, don't actually need treatment. So if I don't see them on a chest X-ray, I probably don't need them. So I think in my mind that people that need really need a CT chest are those that I'm worried about a T-spine fracture because we essentially, you get the recons of the T-spine on a CT chest or an aortic injury. And that's going to be based on mechanism and symptoms and vital signs. But I think otherwise we can eliminate a lot of the CT chests. So I spoke to one of our trauma surgeons about this exact question and his response to me was that the thing you really don't want to miss is, as you mentioned, is a blunt aortic injury. You know, even if you miss a little liver laceration and you didn't do a CT of the abdomen, the patient usually will deteriorate a little bit and you'll have some signs that come back and then you can image them at that point. But, you know, your mortality from a blunt aortic injury can be as high as 1% per hour, you know, so you really need to identify that injury. I think the paramount thing you don't want to miss is an aortic injury. So if it even crosses your mind, I would probably image that patient. And I would agree. And I think the problem though is a lot of our CT chests are maybe done in a patient that's fallen down, has some obvious rib fractures. You can feel some crepitus, but really a patient that fell down, I'm not really worried about an aortic injury, assuming they don't have a pre-existing thoracic aneurysm. I'm not worried about an aortic injury. And yet those are, I think, a lot of the patients that were actually CT. So that being said about not wanting to miss thoracic aortic injuries, let me tell you a little bit about the scrap rule for chest CT and blunt trauma. Usually the decision to do a CT chest is based on clinical judgment, and all too often trauma patients are getting pan-scanned in fear of missing something. So this group out of Hamilton looked at a decision instrument to see which patients didn't need a CT chest. The article out of the Canadian Journal of Emergency Medicine in 2012 was entitled The Scrap Rule, the Derivation and Internal Validation of a Clinical Decision Rule for Computed Tomography of the Chest in Blunt Thoracic Trauma. It was a retrospective study of 434 adult patients from one center with a GCS of greater than 8 and an ISS score of greater than 12 who all had a CT done at admission. SCRAP stands for Saturation chest x-ray, respiratory rate, auscultation of the chest, and palpation of the chest. They found that if the O2sat was normal, that is 95% or more on room air, or 98% or more on supplemental O2, and if the chest x-ray was normal or unchanged, and if the respiratory rate was 25 or less, and if chest auscultation was normal, and if palpation of the chest was normal, then there was a 100% sensitivity and negative predictive value for no missed major thoracic injuries. This would result in a 19% reduction in CT scans ordered. Now, this was a retrospective chart review at a single center and has not been validated in a prospective trial, and so we should take this rule with a grain of salt. I personally like the idea of at least attempting to get away from pan-scanning everyone who comes into the trauma bay where possible, and if this is externally validated, I think we'll be helping reduce the prevalence of cancer while still taking good care of our trauma patients. 
So as we're talking about whether or not to do a CT of the chest, you know, it's very different than our decision of whether or not to do a CT of the abdomen. It brings up the topic of whether to pan scan or not. You had mentioned that based on some previous studies, just based on a bad mechanism, there was a while where most trauma centers were just pan scanning everybody. Based on the literature in the last couple of years, what's your opinion on pan scanning versus selective scanning and on a practical everyday basis in the trauma room, how do you decide how much CT scanning to do? It's probably worth just giving a really brief synopsis of or overview of what's happened. Where did pan scan come from and how it's transformed over the last few years? So the original article was in 2006 in Archives of Surgery. It was the USC Trauma Group. And the article was whole body imaging in blunt multi-system trauma patients without obvious sign of injury, basically where they pan scanned their trauma patients. And they showed that overall treatment was changed in 19% of trauma patients. The problem was, though, this included even minor things. So maybe they decided to consult somebody. Maybe they transferred. Maybe they did some minor intervention that may or may not needed to have been done. One important thing about that paper, they had pretty significant mechanisms of injury. MVC greater than 35 miles per hour, a fall more than 15 feet, a pedestrian struck and thrown more than 10 feet, and then assaulted with a decreased level of awareness. So those are pretty major mechanisms. And the problem is then it got applied widespread to trauma patients all over who had much less than this mechanism. And I think we started to pan scan a lot more people than we, the article had intended to. So the same group, interestingly, in the Journal of Trauma in 2011, the USC group, published essentially a retraction that said the increasing burden of radiation exposure in the management of trauma patients. And it was interesting because several of the authors are actually the same as the original paper. And basically they showed that from 02 to 07, so the pre-pan scan to the post, patients got almost radiated almost twice as much, but there was no change in mortality, missed injuries, or length of stay in the hospital. Since then, there have been a number of papers that have sort of again looked at can we do better than the PAN scan? And so the number of papers have looked at physician-guided judgment on who to scan, selected scanning versus PAN scanning. And basically, essentially, every paper has shown that it is safe, that we can selectively choose who to PAN scan and who to not PAN scan. So I think where the pendulum has swung, and I think we're back, yes, you have to respect mechanism of injury, symptoms, vital signs, etc. And there are certainly a group of patients that require a PAN scan that you just can't adequately and reliably assess, or they have such a mechanism that you can't adequately rule out injury without a PAN scan. But I think we just have to be careful. You don't want to apply it to the wrong patient population and cause large radiation doses that we might not see the effects of for several years. I agree, Dave, that we as emergency physicians, we selectively scan every single day. We don't pan scan all our population. It tends to be more of a, a trauma team phenomenon or a culture that, that wants to pan scan. It's also somewhat geographic, I think. I worked abroad, and the first time I tried to pan scan a, a relatively minor trauma patient, I got looked at crosswise and said, what are you doing? You can't pan scan this kid. So I think it is a cultural thing, particularly in North American culture, uh, that we are maybe perhaps a little more litigious and want to not miss a thing. The other reason that the selective scanning worked, this was in Australia, was that they had enough house staff and staff to 
do serial examinations of the abdomen in a low-risk patient, look at serial hematocrits. So I think if you're going to selectively scan, you have to have buy-in from the admitting service, which in this case is usually the surgeons. And it's not necessarily us that are asking for the definitive test to be done, but it's the, it's the service that's admitting and going to be looking after the patient that is partly to blame. So I think, unfortunately, that does play into the equation of, of whether or not you're scanning somebody, although I don't believe it's necessarily correct. Like I said, I think we use judicious selective scanning every day in our practices in the emergency department. I would agree. You make a good point. And I'm thinking of an example. If you're in a smaller hospital that maybe doesn't have trauma surgery but has, uh, say, orthopedics and motorcycle accident presents with a femur fracture, well, you probably got to decide, does that patient need to be transferred to the trauma center? And that might, maybe they have a minimal findings on abdominal exam. The FAST is negative. But if you're going to keep at your center and admit to an orthopedic surgeon, they're probably going to be pretty sure that the abdomen is negative. And that might be a patient, some centers you would observe, but in, in maybe a different setting, you might actually scan to essentially rule out injury. And if there was, you, you might have to transfer that patient. So, so I agree. It's selective. I think there's patients you need to do it in and, and so many factors go into it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What about the subset of patients that are found down? In episode 13, which was called uh, Killer Coma Cases with uh, Brian Steinhardt and David Carr, we talked about the pearls and pitfalls of working up patients who are found down, but we didn't specifically talk about the trauma workup. There was a recent article called The Found Down Patient, A Diagnostic Dilemma, also out of the Journal of Trauma, which identified some of the problems we face when deciding on how to work up these patients. Dave, can you review this study for us? Tell us what they found and how you deal with the many, many found down patients that you have at St. Mike's there who you're wondering about whether they have a significant traumatic injury. I should state at the start, it's an urban level one trauma center. And they looked at 201 patients who came in and were sort of coded at triage as found down. So really an unknown mechanism. Nobody really knew if there was a trauma. A significant number of these patients had either psychiatric or substance use issues. And in fact, a significant number were intoxicated. Almost half of them were had either a, a psych diagnosis or were intoxicated on presentation. A significant number were homeless. So this was an inner city population. But basically the 201 patients, they followed them and saw... What types of injuries did they have? They didn't do any kind of specific workup. They didn't scan everybody. They, did, they just did the normal workup that was going to happen. The results showed that about 40% of them were identified to have an injury and about 4.5% of them. So 9 out of the 201 needed what they called an urgent surgical intervention. So 7 of those who have the 9, 7 of them were an urgent neurosurgical intervention, so presumably a bleed in the head, and 2 of them were an urgent orthopedic intervention. So don't know what that means, whether it was a femur or maybe an unstable pelvis, we're not really sure. But from this, I think this is a different setting than your average emergency department out there. This is a level one trauma center in the U.S. We don't know where they selectively brought to there because the paramedic was worried about something. So while this seems high, I don't want to take from this to work up all these patients and they all need scans and we should all, you know, I think when you see these patients and like I do, I always have a high level of suspicion. I presume that they've had some trauma or something's happened to them before they came in. I do examine them. I think it's easy for us to just, you know, walk by the bed and have a look and look at their vitals and stop there. But you really should probably put your hands on and, and examine and have a look and, and undress them if you can and basically have a close look and respect that, you know, some of these patients are going to have something that needs to be dealt with urgently. But 
a lot of them are still going to have not much wrong with them and be fine and probably just need a period of observation. Specifically, I think with the CT head problem, I think most of us, I mean, if we scanned every single patient that came in intoxicated, I think, you know, we'd be scanning a lot of patients. And if, if you think it's just alcohol and there's no other sort of red flags that are telling you there's a significant injury, like focal findings, pupillary findings, you know, that sort of thing, most of us would usually wait, expect the patient to wake up as their alcohol level gets less. And if it's not appropriate, if they're not waking up appropriately, then maybe pull the trigger to scan the patient's um, But I think, like Dave says, you careful neurologic exam when they present. And if they're not responding as you anticipate, then although you're delaying their scan for a short period of time, I think most of these will turn out to be negative. This paper does suggest that really the ones we're going to worry about is the head. So it's to scan the head or not. And there are no good decision rules in a, in a very intoxicated patient with head injury. So I think it's worth doing a good head exam. So that means for me, I want to look at the pupils. I want to look in the ears for hemotympanum. If I see hemotympanum, you've made your diagnosis. They need a head scan. They've got a basal skull fracture. Scalp hematoma is going to be a bit more controversial, but I look for that because I want to see if there's any evidence. And I know there's poor correlation between size of scalp hematoma and intracranial injury. But there's poor data for these intoxicated, potentially injured patients anyway. So we're going to use what we have. And if I see a big hematoma in their temporal area, that makes me worried. And I'm probably going to scan that patient. Isn't that your indication for a skull x-ray, Dave? (laughs) No, I still don't do skull (laughs) x-rays. But I would add in. I would do the look and, and decide if you want to scan the head, that's great. Just because they're in a collar doesn't mean a throat in a game that they don't have to get a CT of the C spine. Perfectly fine to leave them in the collar and reassess later on. Okay. So we, we've talked about selective scanning versus pan scanning, the patient who's altered or found down, how there's some intricacies there to think about. What about if we're in the community hospital, like in this case, you have to decide who you're going to scan at the community hospital and who you're going to transfer and let the trauma center scan. We talked about this last time. Could you just update us on some of the literature on this, scanning at the community hospital versus scanning at the trauma center, and if anything's changed in the last few years? I think the object of the referring physician in the rural hospital should be, can I identify an injury very quickly that will mandate this patient being transferred to a trauma hospital? The obvious indications are, you know, an obvious head injury, major chest injury, multi-system injury. So any of the reasons that you would normally transfer a patient to a trauma center, hemodynamic instability, a pelvic fracture. Most orthopedic surgeons in the community are not going to be comfortable with uh, dealing with a pelvic fracture of any significance. So I would start, like Dave said before, chest and pelvis x-ray. And are there any other glaring indications to send this patient? If there are, then stop there. There's a lot of literature on redundancy of imaging, and we find this in our practice. In fact, some of the papers, they quote that there's you know 50% re-CT rate, and I think that's actually pretty low in our community. The reason is... You- so just to clarify, this is re-CT rate. So a CT is done at the community hospital, they're transferred, and then they're scanned again, the same scan... Correct. Maybe with a slightly different protocol at the trauma center. Right. So I think the reasons for rescanning are one, sometimes sensitive imaging, such as a head. So if you know the patient has a neurologic injury, they have a subdural at the referring hospital, and then you do it again because you want to see if there's progression. I think that's relatively justified, but they probably didn't need the first scan in the first place if they knew they were coming to your facility. 
technically there are a lot of problems. You can't store all the information on a disk sometimes or make the disk quickly enough to get it sent to the referring hospital. It'd be great if we could have shared CT scan viewing. So if our facility could look at every study that was done at a rural hospital, perhaps radiologists could interpret those. You mentioned protocols. Very often, a patient gets a CT chest done with no contrast, and that's essentially useless for us. So we do end up re-imaging for those reasons. I would say, again, I'll just reiterate, if you're going to transfer the patient, don't do any scanning. We'll do it all at the trauma center, and I try to avoid duplication of those tests. You probably have enough time to get a portable chest X-ray, treat the complication, also, don't forget, bind the pelvis if there's any indication to do so, so mechanically unstable pelvis. But doing even a fast examination might just give you an idea that the patient's going to need volume on transfer, but you're not actually going to definitively fix the problem, are you? So getting the patient to the trauma center is probably the most important aspect of this. Just in case you're thinking technology's better now and, and we must be able to see the CTs better now from the sending hospital, well, if you look at the series of the literature, so... Back in 2000, there was a paper that showed 43% of the CTs at the sending hospital are repeated. 2012, 60%, and there was just a new one in Journal of Trauma, 2013, 28% had a duplicate CT. So it's probably somewhere between 30 to 60% of the CTs get repeated. The other group I might throw in, so Mike talked about the unstable patient, very clear indication to go to the trauma center. You should... Chest pelvis x-ray, fast, stop there, call, get everything prepared and send, intubate and chest tube if you need to. But you do get the other kind of patient where they maybe have a significant mechanism, but they actually look pretty well. They might have some finding that you think needs a workup. And in your mind, you're thinking, well, they might have a significant injury that needs a trauma center, but I think if I had to bet, I think they probably wouldn't. Like, so, it, like in this case, we present... The guy's intoxicated, his vitals are fine, there's no obvious internal injuries, and it's four in the morning. Yes. I think the reason to scan at your center, if you think you can, that with a negative scan, you're able to keep your patient and deal with them there. Maybe it's send home. Maybe it's keep it, admit to your orthopedic surgeon for their ankle fracture. That's the patient you should probably be scanning at your center. And you know what? If you find something and you have to send that to the trauma center... That's fine. Not a big deal. I think we just need to find the right balance of send immediately and don't do any scans for the second group of patients is, you know, scan because you think that if it's negative, you could actually keep yeah. them there and deal with it. It's interesting. It almost seems counterintuitive. The sickest patients, you don't want to scan and the least sick patients, you do want to scan <laughs> in a way. Well, this, wait, 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 from the from the perspective of the community hospital, when you're trying to decide whether to transfer and when to transfer. This conversation usually goes one of two ways, and you call, you're a rural doc, and you call the TTL, and you say, well, I've got this guy, as you've described, and he says, well, I've pan-scanned everything, and then the TTL says, well, why did you do that? We're going to do it all anyways when he gets here. Or the doc says, you know, I just did a chest x-ray, and I'm ready to send him. And then the TTL says, you haven't even worked them up. Why don't you start scanning stuff? So you really can't win if you're the rural doc in this situation. Yeah, I agree. And you know what? People often ask me that when I'm at conferences or, or giving a talk or something. And I really feel like the TTL group, which we're kind of a part of, is changing. I think we're, we're on board. We're aware of these studies that know about duplicate CT scanning. So really, they should only be asking about scanning if you think that the patient's probably fine. And maybe, you know, maybe the CT will prevent that four-hour trip to the trauma center high cost, inconvenient for the patient and family, you know what I mean? So I think uh, the TTLs are more on board. 
And if I think if you get that answer of why haven't you worked them up and you, you just did the chest extra and you think there's enough to go on, I think you can now have these sort of the literature in your armamentarium to sort of explain why and that this is the best practice now. If you want to do been talking a lot about CT chess and chest trauma, and I want to talk about a few other things related to chest trauma. One is the occult hemothorax. I want to talk about thoracic aortic injury, which you had alluded to, Dave, about how CT scans are useful for picking up aortic injury, which are rare. And I want to talk about blunt cardiac injury and sternal fractures. These are things that we didn't cover in episode 10. Let's say you've got a normal chest x-ray in a chest injured patient And for whatever reason, they go on to uh, get a CT scan of the chest. What if you do find an occult hemothorax on CT? Traditionally, we've stuck a tube into all of these patients. What has the literature recently told us about what we need to do to manage these patients who have an occult hemothorax on CT? So there's a paper that actually addressed that in 2011. So it's from the American Journal of Surgery, and they looked at that specific population. So patients with an occult hemothorax, which by definition, you don't see it on chest x-ray, but you see it on a CT scan of the chest. This had 81 patients, which is not a bad number. And basically, they managed them conservatively. They did not put a chest tube in immediately. They followed up. They looked for complications. Of course, the big ones would be any kind of respiratory distress, any surgical intervention needed, any pneumonia or empyema. They found that 83% of these could actually be managed without a chest tube, which what they thought was without significant sequelae. Now, they didn't get very specific about the monitoring. They did say they monitored for pneumonia, but I would really like to know how closely they followed them up for empyema because really that was the traditional thing we worried about when you leave blood in the thorax is that bacteria loves blood and it's a very high risk of forming an empyema. This study seemed to suggest that when they followed them, they didn't find that. But again, they weren't very specific about the complications. But I think this, at the very least, it's a small study, but at least it suggests that that traditional thinking of you have to drain every little bit of blood out of the thorax might be actually wrong. So... Yeah, last time we had talked about how an occult pneumothorax on CT we can leave and just observe. We don't have to put a tube into. And now it seems like the occult hemothorax, we don't have to do anything either. I mean, it's it's all kind of come full circle. Yes, um, I think we progressed from the giant chest tube, 40 French, to the small chest tube, 28 French, to the pigtail in the one article, to the do nothing for an occult hemothorax or pneumothorax, to now nothing, just Nothing for anything. (laughs) Right. Okay, so I want to move on to the thoracic aortic injuries, blunt cardiac injuries. You know, most of us are pretty comfortable with diagnosing and managing traumatic hemo and pneumothorax, all the stuff that they talk about in ATLS with flail chest and identifying that early. Now, once you've gone through your primary and secondary survey, and you've identified all those immediately life-threatening things, there's always this thoracic aortic injury or blunt cardiac injury, which you kind of wonder about in the back of your head, but you're not sure whether to suspect it, how to work it up, 
and what to do about it. So I just want to talk a little bit more about that. So let's start with the thoracic aortic injury. Dave, you had mentioned that CT chests are good at picking up these relatively rare injuries, and that would be one reason why you would want to do a CT chest is if you suspect a thoracic aortic injury. Mike, when would you suspect a thoracic aortic injury? So it's a good question. I think there's some more obvious things in this and some more subtle things that we would look for. I think probably the most important thing is the mechanism of injury. If you've got a high energy mechanism of injury, the potential for blunt aortic injury is, is certainly much higher, and we know that. And it's not just from what we used to think is anteroposterior deceleration injuries, but we now know from lateral impact pelvic fractures there's an association as well. So essentially any high energy injury. The presence of abnormalities on chest x-ray are always talked about, and there's you know a number of things that have been looked at. The real problem with this is that you can still have a blunt aortic injury with a normal chest x-ray. So not particularly sensitive or specific for these findings. I mean, people do talk about the, the aortic knob with the widening of the mediastinum being the most important things to look at at the x-ray. But I just think you can still have a significant injury, particularly in older patients, with a normal-looking chest x-ray. And so I think Dave gives the example uh, that if you fell four floors and landed on your back but you had a normal x-ray, you're still probably going to scan that patient for uh, blunt aortic injury. And there's yet another score developed called the TRAINS score, the Traumatic Aortic Injury Score, which tries to predict which blunt chest trauma patients might have a significant aortic injury. Dave, can you tell us a little bit about the score? And on top of what Mike said about mechanism of injury, a high mechanism, whether it's the classic acceleration, deceleration, or whether they have a lateral force that's caused a, a major pelvic fracture, that might be associated with it. What does the score tell us? And when it comes down to your everyday practice, when do you suspect a traumatic aortic injury? So we can sort of touch on the score, and I'll tell you why. Uh, might be somewhat useful, but I think there's a lot of problems with it. It was done by a surgery group out of Spain, and basically they did initially looked at 96 variables that they postulated might be associated with a traumatic aortic injury, and then they derived what they thought was a decent scoring rule with an initial score set, and then they did a validation set. So initially, they basically funneled down those 96 variables to seven, and they came up with this list of seven variables. They're each weighted a little bit differently, and you add up the score, and if your score is greater than or equal to four, you're at considered at high risk. If you're less than four, you're considered low risk. I'll just briefly mention them. So widened mediastinum gets you four points on your chest x-ray. So if you have a widened mediastinum, you're automatically trains positive. Blood pressure less than 90, two, lung bone fracture, two. And then you get one for the last four, pulmonary contusion, left scapula fracture, hemothorax, and pelvis fracture. So these are things that purportedly you can derive in your trauma room and you add up the score. So... I guess I'd have a couple of issues with this score. So one being, it's like any of the other decision rules that have been created. The very first trial or the derivation trial looks really good because that's the population you created it on. So of course it's going to be good. That's why you made the rule the way it is. So you really need to apply it to multiple different settings and populations. But the second point is, even in this group where it's supposed to perform the best, in their initial score set period, the train score 
missed five out of the 76 aortic injuries. And in the validation set, it missed four out of the 52 aortic injuries. And to me, for such a significant injury that really has to be dealt with, that's not good enough. And that's only in the, again, the group that the rule was derived in. So I can only see it performing worse when you apply it elsewhere. So I just think it's not sensitive enough to pick up the injuries, even in the group that it was derived in. So strictly going by the rule isn't something you would recommend? I would not at this point. I mean, again, these are all things. I think it's traumatic aortic injury. It's like many other things in trauma. It's a complex decision about who you worry about these on. You're going to be looking at the patient's symptoms and your physical exam and your chest x-ray findings and mm -hmm. your vital signs. And in fact, a lot of these things that they have in their, the seven points they have in their score. Right. So... Dave, beyond those seven points, I mean, those things are helpful just to trigger you to think about this injury. Are there any other practical pearls that you would suggest to help you trigger to go ahead and get that CT with contrast to see if they have a thoracic aortic injury? Yeah, I think given that right now there's sort of a lack of a easy rule we can use or a, a good rule we can use, I think going back to what Mike said, I look at a couple things. If the mechanism makes me worry about an aortic injury, like if somebody falls four stories, I'm doing a CT chest with contrast in that patient because of the mechanism. The other group where maybe they have a low-risk mechanism and you're not as worried, I think it's, a, it's reasonable given we lack of other evidence that we screen with the chest X-ray. And you look for chest X-ray findings. And so if you have a low-risk mechanism and their chest X-ray, the mediastinum looks pretty good, that's what most of us use now to decide about who to work this up. So now we know some of the things that would trigger us to look for a thoracic aortic injury. Mike, could you just go f over for us what the management options are for thoracic aortic injury? Most of the patients that have blunt aortic injuries don't actually make it to hospital. So if the patient has an injury that is relatively stable and is diagnosed on CT, then those are usually fixed in a delayed fashion and until you take care of the patient otherwise. So you want to manage all the other traumatic injuries usually, if they're stable, get those patients dealt with from their other injuries and then finally repair their aorta. So they're treated medically for the first little while in the ICU, management of blood pressure parameters with either uh, labetalol, nitroprusside, those types of things. And then on a delayed fashion, the surgeons usually fix them later on once uh, patients are a bit more stable their coagulopathy is corrected, their hypothermia and acidosis is fixed, then they can take them to the OR in a, in a delayed fashion. EVAR is being used in endovascular aortic repair as well. If they're obviously unstable and they have a, an aorta that needs immediate attention, then, then obviously they're going to go to the OR for immediate repair. But that's the general principle for most of the surgeons these days that take care of the other issues with the trauma patients and then fix the aorta later. It's pretty hard to just injure your aorta. And so very often these patients have other injuries that can be dealt with quicker and need to be. For example, ruptured spleen, significant liver injury, maybe traumatic brain injury. So often these are usually really bad mechanisms. Fortunately, they're quite rare, but I've found the rare ones I see, they often take a bit of a back seat to, the, to other resuscitation measures that are more urgent, such as evacuating an epidural hematoma or you know, the actively bleeding spleen. So while the train score isn't the holy grail, it can help us predict who might have an aortic injury and is worth knowing about. The seven points are a widened mediastinum on the chest x-ray, 
shock, so a blood pressure of less than 90, a long bone fracture, a pulmonary contusion, a left scapula fracture, a hemothorax, and a pelvic fracture. So if you see these in your polytrauma patient, just think about aortic injury and think about getting a CT to rule it out. Next, we're going to talk about blunt cardiac injury. So that's thoracic aortic injury. What about blunt cardiac injury? These are some of the same patients that you might suspect uh, thoracic aortic injury. Mike, could you go over for us when you would suspect blunt cardiac injury and how would you work it up? So I wish there was a simple answer to this question. I find the literature is poor, the definitions are poor, and I'm not sure we have a really good gold standard. But obviously you're talking about a patient with a chest injury, so some sort of mechanism where they've injured their chest. So when you're talking specifically about blunt cardiac injury, I think most of us are gearing more towards myocardial contusion or myocardial dysfunction or concussion, whatever you want to call it. But remember, there's a whole spectrum of blunt cardiac injury from free wall rupture to valvular injury, pericardial disease. So those usually are patients that present with overt findings such as new heart failure, new murmurs, unexplained hypotension, not explained by hemorrhage. So the group that I am most confused about is this myocardial contusion group. And again, in the literature, as I mentioned, this is a poorly defined entity. And I'm not sure if it's an electrophysiologic thing or uh, anatomic diagnosis, but what I tend to look at is which patient that has a blunt injury to their chest is at risk for subsequently developing a cardiac complication. And the most common complication is arrhythmia. So the tools we have at our disposal are one fast. So you do a fast of the heart and you say, well, there's pericardial fluid or not. We're not looking for echo abnormalities. We're just looking for free fluid. Two is a chest x-ray, which essentially gives me the severity of the injury. So if the patient has a big pulmonary contusion, number of rib fractures or pneumothorax, that tells me, okay, this patient's had a fairly significant injury. And I think the three money items on the menu are an abnormal cardiogram, a troponin, and an echo. And those seem to be the, the areas of debate in the literature. There's a recent review, this is from 2009, from the Eastern Association of the Surgery of Trauma. Um, they have practice guidelines that they put out all the time. And they tried to address the screening for blunt cardiac injury. And it's even not clear from their recommendations. But I'll talk a little bit about cardiogram first. Most people would suggest that if you have a normal cardiogram, the chances of you developing a complication from quote-unquote myocardial contusion are pretty rare. In fact, one paper showed the negative predictive value is about 95%. So the previous guidelines had suggested blunt chest injury, normal cardiogram, observe or discharge. The newer guidelines looked at a paper that, unfortunately, patients had a normal cardiogram, but they did troponins on all these patients. And the troponins actually came back positive, even in the face of a normal cardiogram. And so they were suggesting that that's an evidence of myocardial injury. And their definition was that they had to do something, they had to treat these patients for heart failure, hypotension, or arrhythmia. So the recommendations in the guidelines are normal cardiogram, normal troponin, you're pretty much safe. So those patients can either be observed for a short period and discharged. 
The timing of the troponin is a huge other controversy. Some people do it at time of admission, others do it at six hours, and others do it at 36 hours. So there's no consistency to the timing and, and the relationship between what do you do with a raised troponin. Again, the majority of patients don't get into trouble. One other thing that I think we need to think about is uh, our, our facility now is using the high-sensitivity troponin, and there's, I could find absolutely no literature looking at myocardial contusion in the high-sensitivity troponin, so not really sure we know what to do with the troponin. But I think a safe thing to say would be chest wall injury, such that the patient may be in a position to be discharged because they don't have severe injuries. With a normal cardiogram and a normal troponin, those will probably go home. But positive troponin, negative EKG, think that's a little muddier in the waters. And some would argue those are the patients that actually need an echo. Dave, I don't know what your experience is. Yeah, no, I think you summed it up really well. I was going to just maybe add a couple of points. So with the arrhythmias, we know that the patients that generally die from an arrhythmia, it's usually in the first 15, 20 minutes. And so if you've made it to hospital, you're actually out and you have a pulse, you're actually out of the danger zone right away. So the kid that gets hits with a with a softball, they tend to either they collapse right away if they have an arrhythmia or they don't. And if they make it again to hospital, they're usually out of that danger zone. Not to say it's zero, but it's pretty close to zero after that first initial period. I would agree with the ECG. Our center does not do troponins. And the big thing I would point at is what's the point? There's nothing you're going to do about it. Yes, it probably means that some of the myocardial cells have been contused or injured or whatever you want to term you want to use but you're not gonna do anything about it. If they have a normal blood pressure and no arrhythmia, those are the important things. The only thing I've ever seen is if they're hypotensive and you suspect blunt myocardial injury, then it might be worth doing an echo. Really, you're looking for if there's been a valvular injury, so like a ruptured chordae tendine, some other valvular injury. You also might see a large wall motion abnormality. And again, you're not really gonna do much about it, but th those patients are probably gonna to have to be admitted and observed. Yeah, so most of those papers, I agree with you, they showed no adverse outcome or correlation with minor wall motion abnormalities or even a small trace of pericardial fluid. I guess the problem is that this study did report that they had to intervene. So it was hypotension, the absence of bleeding, or a neurogenic cause, a cardiac arrhythmia. So they imply that they had to do something even in the face of having a normal cardiogram and an abnormal troponin. So... So, so I think the point you're still going to miss a, a small number of patients, but it, probably not significant and probably not that clinically significant. Yeah, and I think it gets back to watch for arrhythmias, which you have on your monitor, and what's their blood pressure. And if they're not hypotensive, there's really not much you're going to do. So the ones that you want to send home with relatively minor injuries that I think are the more debatable things. And uh, like I said, negative predictive value of a normal cardiogram, 95%. If you want to make sure and roll the dice and do the troponin, you could do a six-hour troponin or a three-hour troponin with a high sensitivity if you want. And if that's normal, then fine. Its problem is if it becomes positive, then what do you do with it? Yeah, see, and that would be my issue with doing troponins because I'm not a proponent of doing troponins for the exact reason that if you come back positive and the patient looks perfectly fine and their ECG and rhythm monitoring has been perfectly normal, what are you going to do with them? Probably there's nothing to do. Yeah, so I think that the patients that have overt cardiac compromise, like arrhythmia, <clears throat> hypotension, heart failure, that you think is related to their heart, those are the patients that you should worry about. For sure, get an echo on those patients. And admit. Admit for admit. monitoring plus an echo. Right. And, and it's really the only, I think, controversy is the patients that you send home that 
is a normal Cardian enough? Probably. And if you want to roll the dice, like I said, throw a troponin in there. But you'll take the risk that you get a positive result, and then you, it's not clear what to do with that. Yes. And I think there'd be the two schools. One is maybe what I more do is normal ECG and normal blood pressure and no arrhythmia. Then they look and feel fine. Probably going to send them home. Or you can buy into the sort of, I need to watch them for several hours. I need to do you know, a troponin at some point, maybe six hours before I send them home. I think either one based on the literature is probably fine. Yeah, very low incidence of complications in your rather cavalier, cowboyish uh, approach, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> Our merge is busy. I don't know about yeah. yours. <laughs> well, okay. that's it. You get to monitor them while they're waiting in the waiting room to come in. So. <laughs> the other little point I would mention is we threw in hypotension in this setting. And I would keep in mind when you see hypotension with somebody with a bad mechanism and a bad chest injury, Blunt myocardial injury is the cause is probably way down at number seven or eight on your list. Number one, two, and three, I always teach are hemorrhage. The patient's bleeding somewhere. So keep that in mind. Don't sort of latch into the thinking it's the heart because you see AFib on the monitor in a young person and think that that must be the cause of hypotension. It's probably not. They're probably bleeding somewhere just because that's much, much more common. And just one extra point of that is that the arrhythmia may not actually be caused by a myocardial contusion, but electrolyte abnormality or drugs that are on board with uh, patients. Sure. Holiday heart. So how yeah. many of our trauma patients sure. are intoxicated and they can go into AFib. So there's one cause. So when should we suspect blunt cardiac injury? Really, it's in any patient with a serious blunt deceleration or crush trauma to the chest, especially if they're hemodynamically unstable without an alternative cause. These patients should all get an ECG and a FAST. If the ECG is abnormal, for example, if they have an arrhythmia or an ST abnormality or heart block, they need continuous cardiac monitoring, serial troponins, and admission. If the ECG and FAST are normal and you're thinking about sending them home, you may want to do a troponin knowing that the sensitivity isn't great and that if you're stuck with a positive troponin, it's unclear what to do from there. Some would suggest going on to do an echo. Next, in our discussion on chest trauma, we're going to talk about sternal fractures. All right, you guys had mentioned sternal fractures. I just want to talk a little bit more specifically about sternal fractures. In the old days, any sternal fracture was considered a marker for serious thoracic injury. Can you just tell us about what the literature says about who requires admission for a sternal fracture? This looked at whether you could treat isolated sternal fractures. So that's the key point is that it's an isolated sternal fracture. It's titled Isolated Sternal Fractures Treated on an Outpatient Basis. It's a study from Greece by Vasilios, 2012, American Journal of Emergency Medicine. So in this study, they took 42 patients and decided to treat them either as inpatients or as outpatients. And they did a cardiogram as well as an ultrasound of the heart. And if those two things were normal, they sent them home. They also did CKs on presentation as well. So they'd send half the group, 21 went home, and then they came back the next day for re-examination and another CK. So they found that 
the CKs, even if they were elevated in the presentation, all of them had normalized by the next day, and there were no complications in the patients that were discharged home. So they surmise that uh, you can safely discharge patients as soon as you investigate them with a cardiogram, in this case uh, an echo, as well as uh, CK, but that myocardial involvement is extremely unlikely in patients with isolated sternal fracture. And probably the main issue for keeping them would be for pain management. This is also reflected in the Eastern Association of Surgery Trauma Guidelines that I mentioned before. And in their section on sternal fracture, quote-unquote, they say that isolated sternal fractures in the absence of hemodynamic instability could be safely discharged without further follow-up. So they do agree with this, but I think they also did suggest that these patients would get a cardiogram and uh, an enzyme again. Some, most of the studies that say that the sternal fracture are relatively benign and have a very low incidence of myocardial injury or complication are very small, often retrospective, and in the, the evidence is not great. So, again, I think it takes some judgment and looking at the patient as a whole, making sure there's no obvious indications for admission. And then, again, I would treat this almost as, as I would what our discussion was about the mild chest injury and your concern for myocardial injury. This is another study. Now, this is, again, looking at sternal fracture as opposed to blunt myocardial injury, but they always seem to be, it's OFER. OFER is 42. They didn't have to do anything to these 42 patients. And it's the same with all those other, even though they're all small trials, if you have a normal ECG and nothing glaring, you're not hypotensive and you're not in heart failure because of your valve rupture, you're probably fine. And they virtually never in any of these small studies have to do anything, any kind of intervention to these patients. And I think that, to me, is the big point that I take out. Again, this is only 42, but if you add all those small trials together, this and the ones looking at blunt myocardial injury, it's essentially over that anything has to be done to them. Much ado about nothing. A more recent study out of the Journal of Trauma Acute Care Surgery from September 2013 called Isolated Sternal Fractures May Not Warrant Hospital Admission was a retrospective study of 1,867 patients with sternal fractures who were admitted to an Israeli hospital. About a quarter of these patients had an isolated sternal fracture and the rest had other associated injuries. They found that no patients with an isolated sternal fracture required any intervention beyond pain control. Now remember that this is a retrospective study as opposed to a prospective one, and all these patients were admitted and worked up. So it's hard to apply this to the ED when you're deciding whether or not to send a patient home. Nonetheless, what we can get out of this study and the other small studies is that sternal fractures in hemodynamically stable patients with a normal ECG are at low risk for requiring intervention and can probably be discharged home. So we're going to move on to another topic and talk about hemostasis, and in particular, we're going to talk about tranexamic acid. Tranexamic acid has received a lot of attention lately, and we've talked about it in episode 36 and 37 on transfusions, anticoagulants, and bleeding, but we talked about mostly non-traumatic indications for tranexamic acid. 
This is otherwise known as cyclocapron. Let's get into talking about this drug in the severely injured trauma patient. So let's say you've got a multiply injured, unstable patient after an MVC with a positive fast. You've resuscitated the patient with some normal saline. You've ordered up your blood products. You're arranging to get the patient up to the OR. And it's been almost three hours since the MVC. Your resident comes up to you and says, based on the CRASH-2 trial, shouldn't we give this patient tranexamic acid? So Dave, could you just review for us We've talked about the CRASH-2 trial before. What's the latest in terms of the reanalysis on the CRASH-2 trial? Okay, so I'm not going to bother going over the whole original CRASH-2 because we did talk about that last time. But when they did a reanalysis of the data and with such a large trial, we're talking about a trial of over 20,000 patients, they did a large reanalysis and they looked at all the different subgroups and where the benefit was. And probably the big points that came out of it were that if tranexamic acid is given within one hour, that seemed to have the most benefit and definitely less than three hours. So one to three hours also showed benefit. Once you hit the three hour mark, if the TXA was given greater than three hours after the injury, they noticed an increased mortality. And so from the reanalysis, they've actually recommended that TXA should be given within the first three hours after injury. That was probably the big point. They also showed that it was of benefit in all groups, whether or not you required OR for bleeding, whether you had massive bleeding versus mild bleeding, they showed benefit across all groups. So it works at probably multiple different levels. So that would be the second important point from the reanalysis. So Dave, I think it's clear that we should be giving this stuff early. As we talked a little bit earlier about how hard it is to identify the patient that's going to need a large transfusion, and I think some people may be hesitant in giving this drug early on, even before they know whether the patient's going to have transfusion requirements. And I think the point should be taken that that's okay to do. So the entry criteria for the CRASH-2 trial were that, one, you had hypotension or you were tachycardic, or in the clinician's judgment, they thought, hmm, I think this patient might be bleeding. So even before you've given a unit of blood, you can perhaps give the transexamic acid right up front and get it within that first hour. I kind of liken it to, you know, we see a lot of people with chest pain, and uh, it's pretty benign to give them an aspirin. It may help, but it's, and it's certainly not going to hurt. So this is, I think, another, you don't have to guess right all the time for the patients that are really going to need this. If you give it and they don't need it, so be it. Okay, so any patient who you suspect is bleeding within three hours giving tranexamic acid is reasonable? Yes. Great. And the second recent study since the CRASH-2 trial, which has added some more information about when to use tranexamic acid, is the MATTERS trial. Uh, Mike, could you just tell us a little bit about the MATTERS trial? Right. So this was a uh, study done, I think, in 2012, and the MATTERS stands for the Military Application of Tranexamic Acid in Trauma Emergency Resuscitation. They had 800 and uh, some patients and 260 some of them received tranexamic acid in the resuscitation phase. And interesting results were that overall mortality decreased in the tranexamic acid group by about 5%. But when you subdivided that into the patients who received massive transfusions, the benefits were even greater, and it lowered the mortality from about, I think it was 30 to 15%, roughly those numbers. So about a 15% decrease in hemorrhage death. Interestingly enough as well, the ISS scores for the tranexamic acid group were actually higher than the control group. So it seems to have some benefit, particularly in massive transfusion as well. 
Okay, and the way you'd give this is a gram IV over 10 minutes and then a gram IV over eight hours. If you want a good reference that reviews all this, the CRASH-2, the reanalysis, the MATTERS trial, and use of tranexamic acid. So Journal of Trauma in 2013, very good review. It's called Tranexamic Acid and Trauma, How Should We Use It? And it's very good at just going over what all the different trials and sub-analyses have shown and gives you a pretty good overview of things. Okay, so the bottom line is tranexamic acid is a safe drug. In multiply injured patients, you have any suspicion that they might be bleeding, it's safe to give it. The earlier you give it, the better. Don't give it over three hours. And for those patients who are in shock or who are heading towards a massive transfusion protocol, those are especially the patients that you want to give it in. When we were talking earlier about what's on the horizon with massive transfusion protocols, we introduced the concept of thromboelastometry. These new machines, the TEG, that is thromboelastogram or ROTEM, may be able to tell us which polytrauma patients would get the most benefit from tranexamic acid. So this is the thinking. We already know based on the CRASH-2 reanalysis in the MATTERS trial that the patients who benefit most are those that get tranexamic acid the fastest within one hour and those that are the sickest, but sometimes it's hard to predict who will get sick. What if we could identify those patients that are in a hyperfibrolinetic state with thromboelastometry? Based on using these machines in trauma patients, we know that about 10 to 15% of polytrauma patients develop a hyperfibrinolytic state. Why does this matter? Because these patients have a way higher mortality rate, and tranexamic acid directly targets this hyperfibrinolytic state. So wouldn't it be amazing if we could do a thromboelastogram on a polytrauma patient during the secondary survey to target those who need tranexamic acid the most and who will benefit the most from it? We'll see. Hopefully, we'll have an airtight RCT soon that will give us the answer. For now, tranexamic acid is cheap and safe. There's little downside, if any, for giving it. So I recommend that you speak to your ED group and your hematologists and come up with a protocol for tranexamic acid in the polytrauma patient if you don't already have one. I'd like to end up our discussion on a slightly different topic, and that is communication and preparation in the trauma bay. The pessimists will come up with mnemonics like the ABCDE of the trauma bay communication, which stands for accuse, blame, criticize, deny, and exaggerate. Or the other one I came across was the ABCD was avoid, block, cancel, and defer. Communication is very important in any resuscitation, but especially in trauma when there's often a lot of people involved and time is of the essence. So Dave, can you give us some pearls and pitfalls about communication in the trauma bay and update us on some of the recent literature? I think this is an area that we probably don't spend enough time and focus on. A complex patient, like a trauma patient, I think that communication and crisis resource management is very important. We often focus on the little points like which drug should we give and how's the best way to transfuse this patient and how should we work them up. But I think you sort of have to take a step back when the trauma patient actually rolls through the door 
if you don't have good communication and everything's not coordinated well, you're probably going to miss on a lot of these opportunities and things that we do well for patients. So there certainly is a lot of literature on crisis resource management. There's a neat little paper out of Edmonton from Journal of Critical Care 2011. It's called Improving Verbal Communication in Critical Care. And uh, they start out with this neat little quote, which I think can describe a lot of what could go wrong in a, in a trauma room. So it starts out with, meant is not said, said is not heard, heard is not understood, understood is not done. And it just goes through the whole process of when you have a thought of what you want to do and you try to say it and somebody's not listening because it's too loud and somebody doesn't understand because they don't know what it means and then it ends up not getting done for whatever reason. There's just so many ways, so many steps in the communication process where things can get broken. And so there's a lot of work out there. Some of it's looked at other industries. So a big one is the airline industry where they have so many checks and balances. Would you want, when your flight's taken off, do you want the cockpit to look like our trauma room looks like a lot? I'm sure you wouldn't. So I think a lot of the work has looked at taking lessons learned from things like the airline industry, where there are lots of checks and balances and systems in place to minimize human error. It's important for every member of the team to understand their role. And I think as a trauma team leader, a couple of things that I think are worth mentioning are you usually have a bit of time before the patient arrives. And before they do, get your team assembled and everybody should understand their roles. And if not, if they don't have a role, assign a role. So people know exactly what they're doing before they come back. The other thing I find is really useful is knowing your team and calling people by name because then you can get an individual's attention. They'll look at you, tell them what they're going to do, and then they do it. So I think as a leader, you should be more like the manager of the team rather than the performer of all the duties. And we often try and do everything ourselves, but I think it's better to give responsibility to the team members and, and hopefully everybody understands what they're doing. So delegate tasks to individuals. We've actually got name badges in our trauma room now, so that you actually write your name on. I don't, is that, so do we. That's it. Well, there you go. <laughs> so we both have that. So it's funny how neat little things like that, and you notice how actually the trauma runs significantly better when you can actually see somebody's name. If you're at a point where you're not sure what the next step is, as the leader, you could say, okay, everybody, here we are. This is the scenario. Brief summarize and then say, okay, this is where I think we should go with the patient. So it's good to sort of reflect back rather than just sort of run, run around in chaos, but uh, sit back, reflect, and then uh, make a decision. Ask for people's advice as well. I, I think we should all be able to do that and gain a consensus with our teams. Yeah, I agree. I like your points about verbalizing and summarizing. And it's probably especially important in the critically ill trauma patient where many things are happening at once. And for example, somebody you're trying to get to the OR, I find it's really useful to verbalize, okay, we're going to try to get this patient to the OR as quick as we can. So get the binder on the pelvis, get the second IV and put the Foley in and then we're ready to go. Although maybe I shouldn't have said Foley because that can be done in the OR. But, you know, just to go through a little checklist of what you need to do before you leave. And it's interesting, I said checklist. So there was also, we were involved in a trial about a trauma room checklist. So this is another thing that you might want to consider. Basically, it just systematizes using that verbal summary. And so we actually have 12 or 13 points. It's actually designed that you can alter it if you want. If you find, for example, we found we weren't recording temperatures on our trauma patients as high as we'd like to, we added that to the checklist. So before we leave the trauma room, we go over the checklist. And one of the questions is, has the temperature been recorded and what is it? So, so this is another little tool. I think that's kind of neat that can be used. 
that was a WHO study worldwide that's been looked at. So, You know, the trauma room is a magnet for people. Your team's there, but uh, often, as you say, it's cluttered and there's too many people in it. So don't be afraid to, as a leader, get the people who need to be there, there, but the people who don't, get them out of the room. Yeah, you also made good points about being the team leader. Really, your spot should be at the foot of the bed. And you don't want to have somebody putting a chest tube in while they're trying to think of those 15 other things that need to get done in the trauma room. That's probably not an ideal setting. So I know probably a lot of the listeners will be in centers where maybe they're the only emergency physician. So to be a little bit of a challenge, but you know, I think if you're on shifts where there's overlap, you know, get the second physician in there. So have one of you be the worker bee and one of you sort of stand at the foot of the bed and try to manage and organize and, and make sure the overall flow of the trauma is happening. So. Yeah, we often do that for our emerge cardiac arrests now. We do team-based resuscitation and it's just so much more comforting to have somebody there too as well it's just a second set of eyes and a a second opinion yeah and the other i think little point that goes along with communication is i think you want to minimize the people that are shouting out things so one big thing we always say is if for example anesthesia wants some medications for intubation they should actually tell the trauma team leader or whoever's the designate sort of managing the trauma you don't sort of want five or six different people shouting out things to the to the nurses and the CAs to get things done because you need one person to prioritize what needs to be done first. So maybe I want the intubations drugs first, then I want to get the second IV, then I want to get the splint for the leg. So you need one person to sort of prioritize as opposed to having everything shouted out at once. I find that's useful as well. We talked about a lot of papers in this episode. They'll all be referenced in the written summary, which I highly recommend that you read because it'll also give you a synopsis of pretty much everything we talked about. And now it's time for this month's quote of the month. This one's from Francis Bacon. If a man will begin with certainties, he shall end in doubts. But if he will be content to begin with doubts, he shall end in certainties. In our three and a half years of EM cases, We've had some really valuable feedback from our thousands of listeners worldwide, which we've used to help improve the content of the episodes, and we really do appreciate your feedback. But we need even more feedback, so we'd love to hear from you to hear what you think about potential topics we should discuss, experts we should invite, and specific feedback on the episodes themselves. The more feedback we get from you, the better we'll be able to educate you. So you can email me directly at anton at emergencymedicinecases.com or you can find us on Twitter with the tag at EMCases. That's capital E-M-C, lowercase A-S-E-S. And there on Twitter, we've started regularly tweeting key pearls from the episodes plus additional nuggets of wisdom. I'm really excited because within the next few months, we'll have a fully newly designed website with capabilities of downloading directly to your phones or tablets. But for now, I'm afraid, the only way to download the episodes is to download them from your laptop or desktop and then sync the saved files with your phone or tablet. Remember that if you use iTunes, I do suggest downloading 
the button that says iPod rather than MP3 because that is the one that allows us to put in chapter markings so it's easier for you to navigate through your episode. There'll also be a whole bunch of awesome new features on the website. Now, if you have any suggestions for our website redesign that you think will make EM cases better, more user-friendly, efficient, educational, enjoyable, please let us know. Besides the University of Toronto's EM conference in Whistler this upcoming February that I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, North York General, the hospital that I work full-time at now, will be having its huge and amazing emergency medicine update conference in Toronto in May, which I'll be speaking at, as well as Amal Matu, Stuart Swadron, Walter Himmel, and a whole slew of EM cases guest experts. The incredible thing about the EMU conference is that even though it's the biggest EM conference in Canada, it's got small group hands-on procedure workshops where you can practice things like doing crikes, chest tubes, intubation, and slit lamp exams, and all kinds of other practical EM skills, as well as small group interactive lectures. So hope to see you there. Well, that's about it for this month's episode. Next month, we're going to have Dr. Joel Yaffe and Dr. Claire Atzma, who we've had on EM cases before, talking about hypertension in the emergency department. So until next time, take it easy.